This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 544 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Rachel Vickery. Now, Rachel was an elite gymnast competing with the New Zealand national team before transitioning into this sports science world. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey through gymnastics, the parallels between professional sport and the tactical athlete, abuse within gymnastics, the impact of breath on mindset and flow state, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 544 episodes now for you planet earth so all i ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so i can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them so with that being said i introduce to you rachel vickery enjoy
So, Rachel, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks so much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. And I also want to say thank you before I forget to Dan Cooper for connecting us as well, one of my previous guests. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome human, Dan. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I am in Brisbane, Australia. Um, I'm originally a Kiwi, but I moved over to Australia in 2003. So been in Queensland ever since. Okay, I've got a question for you. Being an Englishman in America to my English friends back home, I sound American, to the Americans, I sound English. And I, I feel like I've traveled so much in my life, I've got this kind of like middle of the road, bastardized accent. When I listened to the podcast that you sent me where it was the host was talking about rugby, he sounded very, very, very Kiwi to me. So have you lost some of your accent living in Australia or have you just got one of those regions that's not as profound as others? Yeah, I think I definitely have lost some of my Kiwi accent for sure. But if I go home to New Zealand, you're, you know, same thing. I, they, they all give me grief about my Australian accent, but I still get grief here in Australia about my Kiwi accent. I think it depends on when I've last been talking to people. So, um, you know, I was doing a workshop back to New Zealand just during the week and I get off the phone and, and uh, I sound very Kiwi again for, for an hour or so. Um, but then I do a lot of work up in the US and whenever I'm up there, they think I'm British. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get that all the time. Well, you said, mate, you have to be Australian. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yep, yep. All right. Well, then, for people not aware of the term Kiwi, you obviously were born in New Zealand. So I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where in New Zealand you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, so I was born in a small town, actually, called Fielding, um, which is about two hours north of Wellington. Wellington's the capital of New Zealand. I was only there for about six months, uh, moved to Wellington, uh, lived in Wellington for about eight years, and then um, moved with my dad's job and to be closer to um, his parents um, up to Auckland. Uh, and so lived in Auckland for most of the rest of the time that I was in New Zealand, except for about two years that I was working in a hospital um, about two hours outside of Auckland. Um, so I was a middle child, uh, I have an older brother um, and a younger sister. Um, and my parents, um, my, they were both in education actually originally when I was growing up. So they were both school teachers. They've got, they went on to do other things after that. Um, my dad was a principal uh, at, a, at a school at one point in time and was very into computers and IT. So it was actually one of the first principals in New Zealand to introduce computers uh, into schools and I know that sounds really funny talking about that now but you know back in back in the late 70s that was a that was a big deal so I always grew up funnily enough with Apple computers because um, that was the, the the programs that dad worked in um, and mum's retrained as an education psychologist uh, since then um, had an awesome family um, upbringing um, mum and dad were married um, right up until and together um, with a fantastic relationship right up until my dad passed away about two years ago, um, and so obviously they're back in New Zealand, but they, they spent a number of years living in um, Bangkok and Dubai um, for, for mum's work, actually, um, in different spaces. So, you know, just kind of a normal, I guess, middle-class um, upbringing, um, nothing crazy with regards to that, but probably the, that, out, you know, the thing that was a little bit different about that was I didn't actually spend a whole lot of time at home because of my gymnastics career, which I'm sure we'll talk in, about in a second, um, but even all of the stuff about being a middle child, you know, I don't, I don't really fit, fit into that classic, um, I think, the way, the way we often think about middle children because most of the time um, that I'd normally be a family, I was probably in the gymnasium. 
Interesting. So talk to me about educational psychology and, and what was it about your mother's work that drew her overseas even? So she was um, originally after, after being a teacher for a long time and, and she was phenomenal. You know, like when I was a gymnast, I'd have to be at, at the gym for a couple of hours before school and then be at school um, and then go back to the gymnasium for four hours after school. So mum actually stepped back from her career during that time, got a part-time job just working actually as a medical receptionist so that she was available to, to drive me, you know, back and forward, which is actually quite phenomenal. When I look back at now, I probably didn't appreciate it as most young people don't at the time. Um, so then she started working after that, after being a teacher for a while, working with kids who were either on the spectrum or who had learning difficulties um, and was really working with the teachers to help them adjust the curriculum for kids to have a better understanding um, and, and do better at, better at school in a normal classroom environment. Um, and then after that, really retrained into education psychology, where she's really, I mean, she's just phenomenal with the way she can assess kids who are either struggling with um, you know, anxiety or learning difficulties or at the other end of the spectrum where they're really gifted. So she was working in New Zealand and an overseas student who was in uh, an international school in Bangkok actually came over to New Zealand back home for over, over the summer holidays and mum did an assessment on them and, and wrote, sent the report back to the school in Bangkok and the school reached out to her. They were so impressed with the quality of, of what she'd done to say, look, would you would you come and set up the, the programs for our international school in terms of helping us with kids with both ends of the spectrum with, from learning um, and then the gifted kids as well? And it kind of really went from there. You know, we'd all left home. Um, we were all at different parts of the globe as well. And I think they were at the point in life where it was like, we're going to go, we're going to go on an adventure, which was really quite, when they said they were going to Bangkok, it kind of blew me out of the water really because they were really quite conservative mum and dad, you know, growing up. Um, and so for them to be up and leaving and moving to Bangkok of all places uh, was really pretty cool. And then same thing with regards to moving to, to Dubai. My brother's an air traffic controller um, and he'd been working in New Zealand and, and had been um, then working in Dubai at the airport there for about, Eight years, oh, no, sorry, he hadn't moved at that point. They were moving and um, my parents were about to move back to New Zealand. It was about the time there was a lot of political unrest in Bangkok, you know, and they were, at one point there was, um, you know, tanks in the street and they could hear gunfighting and, and they were like, oh, it's about time to leave. So rather than move back to New Zealand, they moved to Dubai to be close to the grandkids, really. So that's how they ended up there and, and mum did the same thing. Beautiful. Well, I always love kind of pulling from people that have a very international perspective and obviously your mom traveled or your parents travel a lot and then you've traveled a lot firstly with education does she did she ever talk about countries or systems that she thought were doing it correctly because i had a, a one guest passy solberg who's from finland and their their model is always held at one of the top in the in the country so with this kind of international perspective and this long um it, uh, you know, veteran career of, of teaching not only um, quote unquote regular kids, but as you said, either side of the spectrum as well. Um, I'd be curious to see if she had any perspective on, on you know, the pros and cons of some of the, the systems that we see around here. Yeah, James, that's a great question. And my mum's going to kill me because I can't answer that one because it's actually not a, it's actually not a, not a topic we've really discussed at all in, in, in depth. I think my mum being the type of person that she is, she'll always find good things in every education system. You know, she, she's that uh, she'll, she'll, she'll find those ways and she'll comment on the ways that people are doing things right rather than necessarily looking for the areas that they're doing things wrong. All right. Well, then staying on that topic before we move forward, with you traveling so much, with all, it doesn't have to be education, it could be anything. Are there any 
areas that you've seen done in a certain country that you're like, huh, that's actually a better way than than I was exposed to growing up or I've seen in other countries? I think I'd probably almost answer the same thing for mum. You know, that, that in every country I've traveled to, there's been standout things where I'm like, wow, that's a really cool way to do that. You know, for example, I find um, in the US, um, uh, typically there's a, or pr- previously I haven't obviously traveled up since the pandemic, but there was a real attitude towards collaboration and working together and um, celebrating other people's successes. And, and I don't know how many Australian and New Zealand guests you've had, but I'm sure they've talked to you about the tall poppy syndrome before, whereas this sort of attitude of, of knocking people down when they start to become successful rather than building other people up. Um, but I think the standout for me from a travel is almost the opposite, is actually whenever I travel, the gratitude that I actually have when I come back for the amazing life that I have wherever I am living, you know. And I remember as probably a 13-year-old, um, 13 or 14, and, and I'd grown up in a you know, pretty sheltered part of, of Auckland, New Zealand, um, you know, didn't really want for anything. Um, we certainly weren't, you know, extremely wealthy, but, but you know, life was very comfortable and traveled to Manila in the Philippines. And this was a time there was a lot of uh, US control. We carried US currency. We spoke English. We were white. We actually had to have um, documents signed from lawyers that we weren't being sold into slavery because we were traveling without our parents. This is when I was on the, on the national team. We were going over for a competition. Um, and, you know, so we we're traveling with coaches only. And we got met at the at the at the arrivals with um, guards with machine guns. I'd never seen a weapon in my life, let alone a machine gun. You know, and no no matter where we went, we had to have these armed bodyguards with us. Um, you know, the, we couldn't turn on the tap and drink water. The poverty was unbelievable. When you go to a country to compete, they'd normally look after our accommodation. So we're staying in five star hotels, but literally across the road, there's people living in cardboard boxes. And I'd never seen true poverty like that. You know, before. Um, and I think for me, that was just such a wake up call from such a young age that not everybody had life as easy and as comfortable and as amazing as we actually did. Um, and I had school friends at school who were like, oh, you know, New Zealand's such a hole. It's so small. Can't, can't wait to get out of here when, when, when we leave school. And I'm coming back as a 13 year old going, wow, you know, we have no idea. We can turn the tap on and drink the water. Um, and I think that set up just this lifetime practice of gratitude for what we do have rather than looking for where everybody else is doing things better yeah well no i think it's a great perspective and that's something i think that uh traveling has done for me as well you know it really has and you know there's always pros and cons and i talk about this a lot you know one of the dangers is to beat your chest and say your country is the best in the world because that just sets you up for complacency and (laughs) lack of growth absolutely um but you know for example i've been to to new zealand i I started in the the north end of the north island all the way down to queenstown um, beautiful, you know, clean. People were so friendly. It's funny where you're so from friendly. dictates yeah. how friendly people are too. Australia, English, not so much sometimes. But in New Zealand, people were super friendly. Um, but uh, yeah, but and also that gratitude, taking it back. And I think that's the other thing when there is that kind of, you know, this, this place sucks where I live. You, you can't see the wood for the trees. And so by the time you travel and you see, you know, some great ideas that you bring back to make your country even better, but also some some very low areas that can recalibrate where you live and really reinforce that gratitude, just like you said. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, I certainly look at things in, in the US um, from a, in the high performance sport world, you know, and 
and I think you know there's a lot of money to be spent in in professional sport um, and they're not afraid to do so um, but also at the same time not necessarily you know it's interesting how many Australians and Kiwis are working up in the US in the high performance sport you know environment because the skill set from from that training is phenomenal you know it's so highly sought after so I often talk about you know the US has got the, the, the money to spend on it but not necessarily the 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 way of doing it, you know, down in Australia, New Zealand, there's a huge emphasis on, on you know, the um, human performance side of professional sport um, and, you know, using lots of different professionals to, to really dial in certain areas, particularly in the area of, um, uh, you know, not so much the strength and conditioning side of it, but more some of the other skills around performance, um, but not necessarily the money to spend on it, you know. And so there's that catch-22, um, you know, so that's what I mean by there's good things and bad things, I think, in every country that you go into. Um, it's taking those different pieces and putting it all in pot and kind of coming up with a new system, I think. Absolutely. Having the humility to knowledge share, definitely. Like you said, allow the tallest poppy to keep growing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, you touched on gymnastics. Obviously, that's a very big part of your upbringing. So what age did you start and then and what was it about you when a lot of you know young girls and boys try it for a while and then and then step away what kept you doing it mm. I started when I was three because my brother who is two years older than me he was doing it and my parents were awesome where they just got us into all sorts of different sports as kids you know they gave us exposure we swam um you know, I used to play cricket as a as a female, not at three, obviously. Um, but they just believed in giving us opportunities to try different things. And I was always really pretty active. At one point, as a very young kid, I managed to pull myself up and over the balcony and fell, you know, a, a good uh, story down. Um, and I think that was the impetus for mum to go, oh, we've got to get Rach into gymnastics as well. So I used to just go along with my brother to age three. Um, and it just really evolved from there. I, I, I'm not tall, um, which is always a good thing for a gymnast. So um, I had, you know, that in my favour. Um, but I still played a lot of different sports, really, right up until I was probably about 12, um, you know, and I actually I have this memory of um, I was captain of the netball team, and netball is a sport I'm not sure how familiar you are with the US. You're definitely a bit familiar with it from the UK. Um uh, and um, then I was captain of the team and for school and suddenly there was another clash because as the years went on in gymnastics, the hours of training would gradually increase as well, which meant there was less time to do other things. So over time, things got dropped. But I still tried to play school netball for as long as I could, being a team sport and also being, um, you know, that service to school. And I got pulled into the principal's office at about age 11, a big, tall male, and he and he and because I'd had to step down from netball because there was a clash now we were training on Saturday mornings and that was when the games were and I couldn't do both and there was pressure from my gymnastics coach to give it away um and you know he pulled me into the office and told me told me how selfish I was you know um you know giving up netball um giving up a teen sport to focus on an individual sport um and I you know that was mortifying as an 11 year old uh, looking at how that was handled um but anyway so that was kind of how that evolved things just things just dropped by as I as I did more hours as a gymnast now I don't I wasn't ever driven like that mentality we see in many young girls of oh, I want to go to the Olympics you know I want to get to that I didn't have that level of desire or drive I think especially at that young age that definitely came later um, when I I guess I realized that I had some talent um, and I was prepared to work hard but certainly up until even 11 12 I wasn't winning competitions you know I, I certainly wasn't that standout athlete at, the, at a young age I had natural I had talent and I and I 
did all right, but I'd always finish, you know, top 10 maybe. Um, so it was never really that, oh, you know, she was um, always going to go to the top and, and that was the, the destined um, path. But later I, I think I got into that mindset of really going, wow, here's an opportunity to really see what I can achieve, what I am capable of, um, which is, I guess is why I just, you know, stayed in it. Certainly wasn't for love of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was for love of the love of the training, love of the competition, and love of the uh, you know the travel was pretty pretty awesome. Um, but there was certainly a lot that wasn't so great about it as well. Yeah. So, well, what kept you then? So you didn't have that. That I mean, you, you maybe you had maybe as a young athlete you were more in tune with the journey rather than the goal, which I think is the downfall of some people. But, you know, with you not having that, that one single purpose, you know, what was it that kept you going every day? Not, not telling your parents, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, I think I loved testing myself. You know, there was that, especially when, with gymnastics, when you're learning new skills where you don't, you can't do it more times than you can do it, you know, especially as you're learning it, you know, you fail and you fail and you fail and you fall and you fall and you fall. Um, but there's, for me, there was that little bug in my mind that was like, but I can work this out. How, how do I crack this? How do I get it? You know, um, that amazing feeling when you nailed it and you're, you feel like you're flying, you know, there's, there's something that you can't really describe about that feeling. Um, yeah, I think it was that intrinsic motivation around achievement and around trying to do something that was difficult, you know, and, um living that path I guess that not everyone gets to do you know I certainly saw that as the opportunity that that was you know especially uh, you know at such a young age I did my peer group weren't traveling internationally representing their country you know gymnastics is a really young age so typically you're on the on the international teams well before your peer group are even getting into senior teams if they're playing in other sports where their natural international age is, is much older so you know that was pretty cool but um, I just, yeah, I, it's so hard to put into words because it was more an experience, if that makes sense. So what am I capable of? I love, I, I, I like difficult things and I like being able to overcome difficult things. Beautiful. Well, at the same time, because in the US, there, there is definitely that culture of, oh, I seem to be good at this. I'm going to be a professional athlete when I grow up, you know, and then we'll talk about it in a second. But the parents live vicariously through their kids too sometimes. Um, but I don't see that so much in the UK, for example, unless you're a phenomenal football player, soccer player. It's about the only sport um, that I can think of. So did you have any other career aspirations while you were going through school age? Um, I wanted to be an astronaut. There we go. <laughs> so yeah, so, so it was nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with sport, actually. Um yeah, so so in, in gymnastics, obviously, there's not a career path there, you know, unless you're going to go off and be a coach and own your own gymnasium. And there was nothing about that pathway that looked even remotely enticing from my standpoint as a gymnast, you know, so that wasn't an option. So it was really, I think, clear at that age in particular that once I was done with um, gymnastics, I was that was it, you know, that career was, it was closing the door and moving on from that. Um, it, later, later on, and as in, you know, I was about 15, 16, I think I, I started to become a lot clearer. I want to be a physiotherapist. And that had really come from, I guess, being injured so often and seeing, you know, spending so much time in physio clinics and seeing what they did. And we had some amazing physios who, who looked after us phenomenally well. Um, I was like, oh, that's a really cool, you know, that's really cool. Cause, um, you know, I really appreciated the impact that they've had for us, keeping us in our sport and also looking after our well-being too. They saw a lot of stuff that was happening that, you know, they didn't agree with. So they tried to look after us as best as they could. And but that's a pretty cool career. 
Well, you kind of opened the door for that conversation that we were talking about before we started recording. So there obviously have been some, um, you know, some negative press on in the gymnastic world. Some of these, you know, young women or young men, um, who's, you know, who they themselves and their parents have trusted with a group of people to, to make them the best athletes to hopefully prevent injury and obviously certainly to be protected against any sort of um, abuse. Uh, it seems that sadly there are exceptions to that rule as we've seen in scouting, we've seen in you know, many different areas where parents trust their child with an individual, martial arts another one. Um, but you have quite a unique lens on this. You ended up becoming on, on, on a panel that was actually involved. So I'll give you the mic if you want to talk about that whole topic and, you know, what is happening because obviously we only see the the little snippets in the press and um you know and what's being done about it mm, okay thank you for thanks for that yeah i mean certainly gymnastics like many sports was one um particularly my era uh, and i think it stayed the same i can only speak in terms of lived experience from my era back in the the mid uh early to mid 1990s um but it's a sport where not even just the sexual abuse, you know, which I think is the stuff that does make, end up making the news where we hear about a coach or um, someone else in a power position within youth sport who has sexually abused or sexually assaulted young athletes. And obviously, you know, there's absolutely no excuse for that sort of behaviour. Not taking away from that, some of the other insidious stuff that tends to fly under the radar, unfortunately, is often um, the, the verbal and the emotional abuse that young athletes will will be exposed to um you know the constant um yelling or the name calling or the braiding or the you know um the fat shaming or you know gymnastics is obviously a body image sport um like many of our sports tend to tend to be there's that aesthetic side of it too um you know and i think that's the stuff that certainly you know for for me and for my teammates growing up in our gymnasium it was it was a really traumatic um experience in in that arena um and I remember stepping off it a couple of years later and reflecting on it, thinking, wow, you know, if you put that stuff into any other environment, it would be called child abuse. Um, but at the time, it was just it was just normal. It was just, this is what it is. It's normal for the coach to yell and scream at us and kick us out of the gym and have us in tears and pick on someone until they break and then move on to them. You know, that, that, that felt normal and it felt like if you wanted to succeed, that was, we didn't have a choice. There was no other club that we could go to. It was a national training centre. So it wasn't like you could just go and find a different coach, you know. And I think um, certainly from a, from a young age as gymnast, you know, you're taught there's, there's that respect thing. You almost, you don't talk back, you know, you, you cop it. Um, and showing emotion is also, you know, you get yelled at if you show emotion. So you also get really good at just shutting all of that down. And, and so then as you evolve and you grow into, a, a, you know, an older, an older athlete, you, you, you've got that learned conditioning of you just shut up and you don't say anything and you just deal with it, you internalise it. Um, and I certainly didn't share the majority of that with my parents at all, you know, because I knew if they had a real understanding of what was happening in the gym, um, they would have in a heartbeat said, you've got to, you know, this is not okay, you've got to get out. Um, but I loved competing so much that I didn't want that to be, I didn't want that to be the consequence, you know. Um, and um, so anyway, so I guess where that's evolved to over, over time is that, that, you know, that has, and we saw on the international stage, we saw, you know, the Australians, um, certainly from our vantage point as Kiwis, I was on the New Zealand team, um, certainly had it worse. And then, and then we'd go to international competitions like world championships and, 
you know, you'd see these rake thin, rake thin gymnasts um, and until a buffet at the end of the celebration and, and you're literally seeing these young athletes, you know, shoving chocolates down their jumpers and jackets to hide food, you know, and that sort of behaviour, it's just, it's just sad. Um, so eventually there was the... Um, the news that broke around um, that I think the US listeners in particular will be really familiar with, which was the Larry Nassar um, sexual abuse case. Um, and I won't go into that too deeply um, because there's a lot of stuff already out there, um, which then there was the documentary Netflix um, put out called Athlete A. And I think there are many gymnasts around the world who who saw that. And it was almost that point of other gymnasts, I think, being able to go, wow, you know, we weren't the only ones that went through that. You know, we uh, this has happened the world over um, and it's part of the culture the world over in terms of that that coaching stuff. So um, news broke in New Zealand, uh, as it did in many countries around the world at the time, just gymnasts putting their hands up going, yeah, that was our experience. We were abused and this is what happened and enough's enough. Um, so I was on the panel uh, for New Zealand uh, inquiry or independent review into um, culture. In, in New Zealand gymnastics. And that was fascinating where we weren't specifically tasked with seeking out individuals we were who, who had perhaps perpetrated um, poor behaviour and abuse. There was a parallel process that was doing that. We were looking for themes and the areas around sport, uh, particularly gymnastics, obviously, um, that weren't optimal and that were setting up, um, I guess, you know, or condoning these, not condoning, they were allowing these practices to happen. Um, and where did we think changes need to needed to needed to happen? Um, and there's been reports, I think, in many countries, not I think, I know, in many countries around the world who have done similar. And funnily enough, it's very similar themes around, you know, athletes feeling being disempowered through uh, coaches, um, the verbal abuse, the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, um, poor coach education, you know, parents not being empowered to understand what's going on. And I think to your point earlier about parents, you know, is sometimes I think if they are living vicariously through their kids, they they don't want to know. You know, they'll turn a blind eye perhaps to what's going on. Um, some of the really concerning stuff that we heard, you know, going through the review process was from parents saying, I don't want to say, or I didn't want to say anything or I don't want to say anything because of fear of retribution. And having, you know, read a number of different reports into different sports where they've had a similar process where they've, you know, it's that's a common theme is people not wanting to say anything because fear of retribution and how that might impact their kids. And and to me that that saddens me. You know, there's that I'm like, wow, you know, so you would rather not say anything and leave your kids actually in that same environment or that environment that, that could harm harm others. Um, you know, I think we, we need to certainly get a lot more courageous about some of the calls that we have to protect and look after our young people because they're relying on us to do that, you know, as parents and as, um, you know, other adults and bystanders. Yeah, well, it's been a kind of strange lens that I've I've looked through recently, which is, and it was really sparked by moving to America. So you you start to meet all these guys, you know, this is men specifically that first kind of opened my eyes. And over and over again, you'd get almost what you know, jokingly called the Uncle Rico story, you know, that I, I could have been great, but if I blew out my MCL, my shoulder, my this, my that, and we're talking, you know, when you ask them when did this happen, oh, I was 16, 17, 18. And then fast forward all these conversations, many of which were with coaches, you start to kind of question, well, where do we draw the line between performance and breaking our children just so your school, your college, your national team can win a fucking shiny circle with a ribbon attached to it, you know? So it's a very, you know, 
uh, interesting yet, I think, important conversation that where is that line between performance and longevity? And do we find ourselves pushing it more towards a performance at the cost of these children that come through our sports? And then once they leave, well, it's not my problem anymore that they're, you know, now morbidly obese because they blew out their knee and their love of sport was basically killed right there and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great pickup, James. And I mean, it's it's heartbreaking that you see that. And the crazy thing is, is actually, if we if we step back and we set sport up, and not even just sport, but we set things up for success, you know, we intentionally and strategically step back and thought, what is it that is actually going to create high performance individuals? And we actually set up systems and programs and people um, to to do that. By default, we actually end up moving the needle away from all the brokenness. Does that make sense? But one of the things I've, you know, I think is common with things like when reviews get done, it's look for the problems and then find a solution for the problems, you know, so we can say that we fixed broken, but fixing broken doesn't necessarily by default give you excellence and give you outstanding. You know, it just gets rid of that problem. Um, and it also means that you're not, you still haven't set up that high performance culture and environment. I don't mean I don't mean high performance from the perspective of winning the gold medals necessarily. It's one where it's a successful program where you've not broken more athletes than you've actually had successful on the way through. You know, and that was one of the things that blew me away about you know New Zealand and gymnastics in particular that um, there wasn't this, you know, there's not many gymnasts on the national team. You know, it's not a big population. We haven't got a million gymnasts that we can break and burn. You know, it's a bit of a precious commodity. We should be doing everything we can to, to keep them in the sport and, and bring them through. Um, but as I've stepped off sport, and, and some of this was related to doing this um, review process, um, so, you know, um, co-authoring the, the report um, for gymnastics, was prior to that, before I got asked to come come involved, I was concerned at the fact that, you know, by the time New Zealand had this call for this inquiry, I think it was about the sixth sport over the four years prior that had, had, had the need to do an independent inquiry into what was happening in its sport. And the same trend was happening in Australia for sure. I haven't looked too closely about what was happening in the US and the UK, but I'm sure it was very similar. And to me, that was highly concerning to go, it's not actually sport specific where there's problems. You know, when you read those reports from different sports, the themes are really, really similar, which speaks to there must be a much bigger, broader um, issue in terms of what we're, what we're doing and how we're approaching high performance sport. Um, and I think one of the things I think is concerning is often you look at coaches and athletes on the ground and they know what they need to do, basically, you know, for the most part in terms of, um, to create the results that they want, you know, and it's a lot of time and money spent more so recently um, on coach education, athlete well-being, those sorts of things. But do we actually have high-performance individuals who are in leadership positions, you know, who are in on the board, who are um, in the leadership positions within a team, the administrators, those sorts of things? And, and too often, unfortunately, we see people at the top level in sport who are motivated more, and this is a gross generalization, so I certainly don't mean to offend, you know, people who are really in it for the right reasons, but they do tend to be in it for the wrong reasons where it's ego driven. Um, and that often will mean that they're not making those courageous decisions about what's in it for the best interests of the athletes, you know, and the coaches on the ground. It might be more what's in the best interests because, you know, if it's a professional team in particular, you know, we've got shareholders, we've got, you know, we've got sponsors we need to keep happy. We've got all of those other um, things that I guess 
influence sport um, that might not necessarily be healthy. I often think about that movie Gladiator. Have you, I'm sure you've seen that one with Russell Crowe. Yes, the famous Australian yeah. Roman Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think he's a Kiwi. Um, oh, is he Kiwi? Actually, I apologise. <laughs> I, I believe so. no, 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 no. I think you know. I think he calls himself an Aussie, but I, I think he's a Kiwi originally. Um, yeah, and I often think about that, you know, the gladiators and how we, you know, back in that day, we'd throw them into the Colosseum, and it was basically sink or swim, and you know, that they'd lose their life and, and, you know, people would throw bread at them, you know, they'd earn their keep that way. And I can't help but see some of the parallels to Olympic level sport now. Do you know what I mean? We basically, we do, we throw athletes into the into the cauldron, being the gladiators, you know, we they're there for entertainment and, and, and the general public's perspective. The athletes aren't there to entertain, they're there to do their thing. But from the outside of you, you know, it's like, oh, they're there for our entertainment. Um you know, and as the average person, we don't care if they get spat out and broken because that's not, you know, and I'm just like, wow, I think there's a lot of parallels there. And have we actually moved very far from those gladiatorial days when it was okay to just break people? Yeah. Well, there's an interesting parallel with the first responder professions too. So you get, we are breaking our responders. We're working them into the ground. You know, they're dying from a host of diseases. They're taking their own lives. And again, you talked about shareholders and sponsors. Well, for us, it's, you know, Again, leaders many of times who have not really done a whole lot on the ground, then they're pandering to councils and, you know, taxpayers with the loudest, you know, voice. And so they're the same things. And rather than focusing on the longevity of the responder and therefore delivering a higher level of service and not killing them, um, it's the opposite. It's the, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll cut the budget. We'll make you happy. And in the meanwhile, you know, we're seeing our men and women in uniform taking the brunt and working more hours. And sadly, you know, many of whom are dying either before retirement or shortly after. Mm. Oh, and that's, that stuff's heartbreaking. And, and I think that's where the conversation to me away from sport moves into the much deeper stuff, you know, because in, you know, it is like, it is lives on the line for people, you know, whether that be through suicide or just, so, you know, people are so broken. Like certainly when I gave up gymnastics, you know, at 19, I retired. Um, and, you know, I was a really broken human at that point, you know, um, mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, and, you know, I had a choice at that point. And, and I remember actually probably about age 14 or 15, you know, and I, I, was, I was always in pain was over being abused all the time um but didn't see a way out you know didn't see it's like if I want to do this sport this is what it takes the only escape is to walk away I don't want to walk away because of then all of the stuff around failure um or, or feeling like a failure to, to quit on something um and I remember having those deep dark thoughts around you know life would be so much easier if I wasn't here now never did that get to the point for me of and this is how I would do it you know, which was probably a godsend. Um, but I think it would be very rare for certainly athletes that I've spoken to, you know, and not even specifically in the space, just high-performance athletes, where they don't get to that really dark place of, you know, life would be easier if I wasn't here. Now, for majority of people that doesn't progress past that, at that point, all we're doing is looking for a, looking for some way to make the pain go away, you know, but for some people, unfortunately, it does. It, it does escalate from there. Um, and that's heartbreaking. And I think there's two things, you know, that on that two different tangents. One, I've just finished listening to that podcast series, The Line. I don't know if you've listened to that. I think it's pretty new. Um, it's a, it's an Apple podcast um, original, and it's about um, 
uh, the you know the US um, special force operator who um, Eddie Gallagher um, who was I think um, you know war crimes were laid against him and um, he was charged and he was uh, pardoned by Trump and it was fascinating there was interviews with many of the seals including Eddie um, and just talking a little bit about what happened but there's a much deeper conversation that gets had around the trauma and the moral injury and I think the expectations that we have as as civilians in society of of the things that we ask people, other human beings to go and do on our behalf. And I think that's the same and same but different in police, you know, same and different in fireys. Um, but for these guys, obviously, you know, their job is to go and kill people, you know, and, and in some scenarios and just the impact of, of that that has. Um, and and it, it kind of shakes you to a core, I think, often it, 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 as, in, as a fellow human to go, This, these are the things that we are asking other humans to go and do on our behalf, you know, and um, and I think to be able to lead those sorts of people um, take, does take a certain level of character um, and strength and courage, um, and, and I mean in the leadership positions, not just the operators on the ground, you know, um, and it saddens me, I think, to see often in, in, in sport you know, we have this expectation, I think, for coaches and athletes that they will live with, you know, they've got that excellence mindset. They will do whatever it takes to be, you know, to be the best at what they do, that they'll take that responsibility, that they will act with integrity and honesty and uphold the sport. And, you know, all of those things, if you read an athlete contract or a coach contract, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty robust. It's pretty, you got some pretty tight lines that you have to live with and understandably so. But are we holding our administrators are we holding our boards are we holding our sport leadership teams to that same level of account around are they doing their job with excellence and courage and integrity and you know is that perhaps where some of those things are are falling down now I don't have an answer to that but it was certainly having read many reports and reviews and just witnessing what happens in different sports I think there's almost that not fraudulent behavior but incongruence of expectations of what's okay for the people on the ground at the at the coalface and then the people that are in the, you know, other offices making the decisions that aren't necessarily being driven by those same qualities and expectations that we hold the operators to. Does that does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge disconnect, especially if leadership has never been in those positions. As you said, if they've never been an elite athlete, they've never been, you know, a, a firefighter, a police officer on the streets for you know a number of years. Um, you know, they never slept in a bunk room and woken up, you know, four or five, six times a night with this screaming siren. You know, I mean, there's these disconnects can definitely cause a lot of problems down the road. And I think, you know, for example, the Derek Chauvin case, you know, I mean, did he in, in preschool, was he planning on murdering a black man one day? I doubt it. You know, so again, does it make what happened right? Also, no. But, you know, there's a series of events that led to that point and it wasn't all just his timeline. Yeah. 100% agree with that. And that's something that I'm starting to try and push towards. And, you know, it's a, it's a slow push and I'm one individual, you know, but really starting to bring that awareness to, you know, particularly in the organisations I, I work in, that we don't want the focus to just be on coach and athlete performance and excellence and and, and the work being done for them. Actually, you know, because they come and go, you know, we also need to be doing it from the top down as well. Performance coaching effectively almost with our boards and our leadership teams and, you know, really pushing them on on some things. Well, I want to stay on one more topic on gymnastics and then we'll go through to, you know, your transition out and the work that you found yourself in. But um, from, you know, a firefighter who 
has definitely been talking a lot about mental health. I'm far from an expert, expert, just being, you know, one of the voices out there bringing amazing people on the show. But witnessing what happened with Simone Biles in the Olympics and the backlash, the, the, the horrendous narrative that was happening about, you know, she support, you know, representing her country and how could she do this? And it was all a lot of negative talk. I saw it as the polar opposite, that it took so much strength, all the training that put her onto that stage. She obviously understood, as they say, the weight of gold more than anyone. And to me, what I saw was a woman who at that point knew I'm not in the right headspace to be able to do this. And again, with you being an actual world-class gymnast yourself, you had a very interesting perspective on attempting um, a routine when when mentally you're not there and, and the dangers of that. So I would love to get your perspective as that because I think the way that was handled by a lot of media was was terrible and it sent yet another negative message about being honest about your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, first to clarify, I, I'm not even in the same, close to the same category of uh, world-class athlete as Simone Biles, <laughs> just to clarify that one. Um, but, yeah, certainly um, – I think the thing that wasn't that didn't the general public looking from the outside and possibly didn't understand about about that is it wasn't just a decision that was based on oh I'm not in the right headspace to compete you know the pressure has too got got too much I need to take the pressure off there's something that happens um, sometimes for gymnasts um, called it's called the twisties where where you completely lose your awareness of where you are in space now when you're in gymnastics you know you're somersaulting you're twisting you're rotating it's also fast so so you don't have time in the air to think about where you need to put your body to execute uh, or to give yourself the next instruction you basically you've trained yourself just to know instinctually where you are where the ground is where you need to open so you can adjust in space but you're not thinking about it um, and with this condition the twist is you completely lose that awareness you have no idea where you are so you throw yourself up um, and you don't know whether you're upside down, right way up, halfway twisted, three quarters way around. You, you literally have no no idea. So it's actually unbelievably dangerous. Um, I've experienced it as a gymnast um, when I was competing. Um, and I'm only really grateful that, um, you know, we weren't throwing even close to the difficulty level that, you know, Simone does. She's, she's the, she throws the most difficult tricks um, in the world and consistently, you know. So it wasn't just, oh, the pressure's too much she would have suffered if she'd lost herself in space, you know, broken neck, um, you know, potentially um, worse than that, who knows. But, you know, I think the call that she made was unbelievably, as you say, courageous. I certainly don't think in previous USA Gymnastics um, eras that she would have felt that she could do that. Um, I, I can't speak for Simone. I have, you know, I, can't, I, I want to put that on the table. But certainly the control from coaches and, and demands from, um, you know, other, you know, organisations would have been, she probably would have had to have gone out and done it anyway, you know. And we've seen, um, you know, in years gone past, you know, the media celebrating uh, previously a US gymnast who competed on a, on a broken ankle and won a, you know, did that to win the team medal and how brave is she and all of that sort of stuff. And I look at that and I go, wow, you know, the fact that we asked a young girl to go and compete on a broken limb is, you know, isn't there something quite sad about that? Um, and worse that we celebrate that as that was amazing and how courageous rather than how could the coaches actually do that to a young kid? You know, that's, I think, where the conversation perhaps should have should have laid. Um, but I think that, you know, that bravery that Simone had, and I think that also has given 
you know, just other gymnasts and other athletes probably that permission because most most athletes understand why and how uh, Simone made that decision, I think. And again, can't speak for them, but when you've lived it, you have a good understanding, you know. Um, so certainly I think it's given them permission to go, actually, I can make decisions for what's right for my body um, and my livelihood rather than just what I'm told that I have to do. Yeah, well, thank you for and that you perspective. remember a sport... No, no, that's all right. I was, I was just going to say on that, you know, the other thing I think about with a sport like gymnastics is because you grow, like for me, I was three, you know, when I started 19 by the time I retired, every part of your identity of a human being is is wound into developing as a gym, you know, as you go through those formative years, you know, that sport was so wound into it, you know, and we're told what to do, where to go, what to wear, what to eat, you know, all of those things are actually you're told what to do. You didn't have a whole lot of choice in those sorts of things. Um, so to me, the really cool thing for some that, that I witnessed with Simone was she was empowered to make that choice for herself, you know, and I think that is really, that's really cool. You know, think about it in your world. I'm sure there's scenarios where, uh, you know, people have to do things that they really, really don't, you know, they really don't want to do, you know. And I think same thing in our special force community, you know, are there things that we're asking people to do? And I'm sure that, but it's like you've got to follow orders, you know, that was the order. You have to go and do that, um, you know, and what is the consequence? And I understand that in some scenarios that is critical. You have to do that. And, and that has to be how things are set up. Um, but at some point out the back end of that, I think for, for people when they're out of that environment, being able to be empowered with making their own choices again of, of what's right for them, you know, that's a skill. Yeah, I had to learn how to do that. You know, I had to learn how to make decisions again for, for myself after I retired from sport. That's crazy, you know. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that are, I think, very important. Firstly, as you said, sending, you know, a gymnast who's got a broken, you know, leg to compete is very different than a firefighter who breaks their leg in the middle of a fire trying to drag someone out. And if they let that person go, that person dies. So again, sport is not saving lives. And I think there was a kind of missing there, like, oh, you've got to do it. You've got to suck it up. If our veterans can do this, well, no, it's not the same. This is a gymnastics Absolutely. event. Um, yeah. But also with that um, identifying as a gymnast, you know, we see a very similar parallel, especially with the conditioning. You take the military. Yes, they're high school age when they go in, but a lot of these young men and women, you know, they're signing up 17 the moment they, they graduate and they get their piece of paper. Off they go and now they're indoctrinated in the military and they spend X amount of years. Um, and then they, they come out the other side and they haven't really learned what it's like to be an adult outside of the military. And as many of our, you know, even special operations guys talk about, I was, I was fed. I was told where I could sleep. I was, you know, trained. I was PT. I did all these things. I didn't really have to think. So there's a lot of interesting parallels between elite sports and, you know, police, fire, military. Um, one resounding kind of negative side effect of that, I think, is that a lot of these men and women then identify as a gymnast, a, a soldier, whatever it is. So talk to me about that. Cause in the documentary, The Weight of Gold, that seemed to be a very, very common denominator with all the different multi-sport athletes that they featured what was your transition at what made you finally decide to retire and then what was like what was that like for you when at three years old you were being told you were a gymnast and now here you are as an adult and you kind of spat out the other end yeah, for sure. And certainly when I was three, it was just fun. You know, it was Ford Rolls and, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but for sure, um, you know, so so I did world champs, competed world champs, and then I competed in Commonwealth Games. Um, missed qualifying for Olympics because um, back in my era, you had to qualify at the world champs previously. And I actually ended up with the measles, even though I'd been 
vaccinated as a kid, ended up with the measles in, uh, in Indianapolis. Um, so I was actually in quarantine for about a week uh, before then having to compete. And even that's crazy. You know, I was in bed in a hotel room, literally leading into world champs, hadn't trained for over a week, was out of quarantine for about 48 hours and I had to compete. Um, and needless to say, you know, the competition wasn't stellar. Um, as a result of that, I managed to um, have our whole team shut down and locked down, which is quite funny now thinking about the pandemic, but we were, you know, shut down in a hotel room and um, the whole team wasn't allowed out. They flew in people from the CDC. They were about to ship us off to a quarantine camp because at this point they had this infectious disease. They didn't know what they had but because uh, they'd eradicated measles at that point in time and, and locally. Um, and so they ended up vaccinating about 2,000 athletes and officials. Um, so that was my Olympic uh, campaign kind of over because by the time the next Olympics coming around and um, that would have been 96th, the second, the next lot, I was done, you know. So it was con games. I'd injured myself very badly in the warm-up right before competing, uh, injured my wrist. Um, and as, as you do, didn't, didn't tell the coaches, didn't tell anyone, just competed on it. Um, because even, you know, that what you said before about it's different if you if you are a firefighter and you break your leg in a fire trying to pull a teammate out or, or, or another person out, you just have to do it because it's lives on the line. We felt, and in in a, in a, I don't mean any disrespect in terms of taking away from, from that, you know, but in the moment as a young person with the weight of expectation and the consequence of, you know, the coach's, um, you know, negative feedback or whatever, we had a coach who just on an international team was disappointed with what we did and didn't talk to us for the rest of the international tour. You know, they were the adult with us. So that was the consequence that, you know, the consequence of, of failure, um, felt significant. It felt it felt um, huge for us as young kids. Probably comparable um, to to lives being over. We thought our life would be over. You know? um, so so so. Anyways, I came back, had surgery on that um, on that wrist, and and someone had always said to me, never give up a sport, never retire in a form slump or when you're rehabbing from injury. You know, because sometimes you'll make a decision that you regret. Um, so I made the decision to get fully back to full fitness and strength and then, and then make the decision. And I remember standing on the beam one night to do this, you know, the beam's 10 centimetres wide and I was standing at the end of it about to throw a triple somersault flip thing, flip series backwards. And I stood there and I stood there and I stood there and I stood there and I could not find a single part of me that actually wanted to throw myself backwards anymore, you know, and, and, and that was it. I just knew I was done. I, I jumped off the beam and went and told my coach that I was done. Um, and she was like, "That's fine. There's a group of kids over there that needs a coach. Go coach." That was that was my re- that was my retirement, you know. Um, so then I was really lost, to your point, because my whole identity had been Rachel the gymnast. At school, um, there was lots of Rachels, and I was known as Rachel the gymnast. That was that was kind of my surname, you know, which is crazy. So suddenly I wasn't the gymnast where all of my self-worth and my, um, you know, the external validation, the praise, the, you know, everything about who I thought I was and what I thought I was worth was attached to that, um, you know, that title, the gymnast, you know, um, the, the stuff that you get in the press or the media. And, and even though we didn't live for that, gymnastics is a funny sport where you can think you've done a really good job if you're competing, you can think you've done a fantastic vault, best one you've ever done. But there's judges down the other end of the score, the, the vault run up that will show up a score and their opinion of what you do matters far more than what your opinion matters, if that makes sense. So I didn't have a good internal barometer of whether I'd done a good enough job because that was irrelevant. It mattered more for so many years what other people thought of what I'd done. 
Um, so even that whole external validation stuff was, you know, was really kind of crazy. So I gave up and I was like, oh, well, who am I if I'm not the gymnast? And every part of that was woven into my DNA and my thought processes and my, you know, everything about me growing up. And that was not there anymore. I was completely lost. Um, threw myself into physio studies, which was probably a lifesaver at the time. Had a, a whole bunch of part-time jobs because same thing. I didn't know what to do with all this free time that I had. You know, we'd been training 36 hours a week um, plus school. Um, plus a normal school uh, week on top of that. So suddenly I had all this free time. What do I do with it? Freaked out, you know, didn't know all of this, uh, you know, this lack of control stuff. And then it was felt really scary. So I threw myself into, into that. But I also um, went on a, I lost a lot of weight um, after that. And my competing weight was about 57 kilos, 56, 57 kilos. And I, I, I'm sorry, I haven't, can't, you can probably convert that into pounds much faster than I can. Um, but when I gave up gymnastics, I, I stopped eating things that had been making me feel sick. I had undiagnosed celiac disease at the time, um, but I didn't know that. So I just stopped eating a whole lot of stuff um, and uh, lost a lot of weight But I, and, and ended up at about 38 kilos at one point in time a couple of years later. So that was tiny. Um, and it wasn't a normal eating disorder from looking from the perspective of I'm fat, I need to lose weight. It was more, I think, in this parallel with I completely lost who I was. It was almost like my physical body was disappearing as well, if that kind of makes some random sense. And, and I think where the gymnastic stuff had messed with me with that was because there was um, putting on weight had been such a failure, you know, for such a long time. We were, we were you know, punished for that or um, ridiculed for that or whatever that even though I had to put on, I knew I needed to put on weight and I knew I wasn't well, um, there was that mental barrier around stepping past that sense of failure attached to that and what would the punishment be attached to that, which was, you know, that I said I was really broken when I gave up. There was a whole lot of that um, and obviously gradually moved through all of that. It was fantastic for me. I'm so grateful for the experience that I had as a gymnast, actually. I was just reflecting on this the other day because as a consequence of all of that tough stuff and how hard it was and how broken I was, it actually made me do all of that work on myself and really get an understanding of, um, you know, what makes me tick and why, what are those patterns of behavior that I actually want to let go now and not continue moving forward with, you know, and I think I had to quite intentionally make that choice of who do I want to be showing up in the world as, as a human, rather than just that almost that default process that happens where we just grow up and one thing leads to the next and one thing leads to the next. And I'm grateful I had that at such a young age because I think all of us do get to that point at some point in time um, where we have to sort of take that really dark look at ourselves, deep look at ourselves and, and look at our stuff and, and decide what we're going to do about it, um, if, if that makes sense. And gradually, you know, moved on and, and, and moved past that. But for many years when I met people after I'd retired from gym, gymnastics and they would say, you know, what do you do? And I had this need to say I used to be a gymnast. Because in similar, I think you mentioned that you know briefly about the, the, uh, people who will say, "Oh, I could have been amazing if I, you know, if I had blown out my MCL," you know, or how many people in in, in your world, you know, perhaps they've retired from service and they might say, "Oh, I used to be a firefighter," you know, "I used to be what whatever," you know, "So I used to be," because at that point in time, I hadn't yet created well, who what who am I now, you know, and I didn't have pride in that person of who I was now. So I I used to feel like the only way these people are going to respect me or like me or think I'm in any way a valuable human is if I can say to them, oh, I used to be a gymnast on the national team. And I go, oh, that's, that, that's awesome. You know, so then I had value in other people's lives because I felt so worthless as a human at that point in time. Um, so it was certainly a really traumatic couple of years um, 
on one hand, but on the other hand, such an amazing opportunity for, for learning and growing and, you know, setting life up moving forward. Beautiful. Well, I, firstly, I mean, I can relate to that because I still find myself saying I used to be a firefighter. <laughs> so, yeah, so just saying I host a podcast. It's common, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And isn't it funny because we make that perception that other people are going to think, you know, this whole crazy what other people think matter, matters, you know, um, and we could, man, that's a whole conversation in itself that we can have, but that we make this judgment that people are going to think you're far more valuable member of society as a firefighter than as someone who hosts this incredible podcast and brings these awesome guests on who can you know the 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 perp, you know you're so aligned with purpose and helping other people now probably on a global scale compared to just in your local environment when you were a firefighter you know but it's your perception our perception that that other people will think it's not valuable it's crazy yes no 100% 100% well speaking of kind of bridging where you found yourself versus the the world you used to inhabit um one thing I've heard you discuss on other podcasts that I think is really interesting is the psychology behind doing the exact same routine in the gym, around your team, in your home gym, where you're not being scrutinized by judges, and yet the the external invisible pressure that causes many athletes to crumble when they're under a spotlight. So kind of talk to me about the world you found yourself in. And I'd love to unpack that first because I think that that, you know, that pressure cooker element is, is, is amazing, you know, and, and the skill itself literally hasn't changed, but we, 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 we beat ourselves mentally. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was actually the thing that led me into what I do now around performance and high pressure and high stakes environments. Um, because as a gymnast, I had this move that I would start my beam routine um, with. Um, and the beam is 10 centimeters wide. So it's only a, you know, a few inches wide, about 120 centimeters or so off the, off the ground. Um, and when you're a short person, that feels very high. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's the, 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 event that most gymnasts feel the most nervous about competing certainly myself um, because the margin of error is is tiny there's there's almost no no room to make a mistake in terms of where your balance is and the consequence of falling off the beam is also the penalty for that is also very high so it can it can drop you if you fall once that'll be the difference between a gold medal position and and finishing potentially bottom bottom of the pack depending on how many other people fall and make significant mistakes Um, so um, the, the, the move that I'd do is I'd start, you know, probably about three metres at the end, from back from the end of the beam facing, facing towards the beam that was lengthwise in front of me. I'd tumble forward, land on a springboard that was at the end of a beam. It's called a round off. So now I'd be facing with my, at the end of the springboard with my heels on the, on the end of it, with my back to the beam, somersault backwards, um, land on one leg um, on this thing that was 10 centimetres wide. And, and for the most part, it was a blind entry from the time I was, um, you know, my heels were on the board and I was my back to it. I couldn't see, I couldn't see where the beam was. I just had to trust I'd align myself to, to land in the right place. And then once you're in the air, you can't, you can't correct if you're, if you're off, you know, cause you've got no force to obviously push against. Um, and if in a, in a training environment, I could nail that 10 out of 10. It was a move I actually loved training. Um, I'd nail it perfectly, not even a wobble. Um, if there was a competition that didn't really matter, same thing, I'd be on the beam, no problem. If it was a big meet and it was something that there was a significant consequence to that, I somehow managed to be on the beam and then I'd just be a little bit off with my balance and suddenly I'd be on the ground. Um, and unfortunately, I'd also almost got to the point, I think, where I was 
this had happened a number of times, I was almost expecting that it was going to go wrong as well, which also over time added into the pressure attached to that because I'd had lived experience of it going bad. Um, and and I never managed to crack that as a gymnast. I worked with sports psychologists. I did you know, a whole lot of work on visualization and positive self-talk and all of the strategies from a mental performance perspective that we traditionally give people. Um, and I never cracked it. And I was a really good competitor. So it wasn't that I wasn't a good competitor. You know, I usually would compete far better than what I probably above my, my <laughs> what I probably should have been able to do. But except for this one move, you know, and it certainly cost me the ability to challenge for a medal at Commonwealth Games. And, um, and you know, you give up sport and, 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 you know, it stings at the time. It absolutely did. But you move on from it. So it's certainly not something I, I held on to. But um, it, it had me really look at things to go, what exactly your question? Why is it that as, as humans we can get really good at a skill? We know exactly how to execute on a skill until the pressure comes on. So it's not that we physically can't do it, right? And then gradually I, I went and studied a whole lot of other things that will probably you can talk about that in a second if you want to. But gradually over time what I started to have a real understanding of was what happens to our human stress response at a physiology physiological level you know things like breathing heart rate um, in particular and everything else at, at physiology level because mentally and emotionally most of our alpha, alpha performers and our alpha humans um, uh, males and females are mentally and emotionally strong and resilient that's not where the issue lies um, but there's this often misunderstanding that our physiology underneath all of that can still go nuts it can still get out of control you know um, so mentally and emotionally it might look like we're across it all some people go I thrive like I did I, th I loved competition I thrived under pressure except this thing would still get me you know and so what was happening for me was that because the arousal state was was cranking up because there was pressure to I have to execute this now there was also a lot of pressure for me around consequence of um, the feedback from our coaches you know so I'd, I'd be you know yelled at or whatever if I missed it and I knew that um, going into it and that that was also sitting on a big background of of, of pressure and um, you know things not great um, in in the gymnasium in particular um, just because of that that long-term high arousal toxic environment um, which meant my arousal state was high anyway before I even got to the competition and then it was a competition and it was a big one and that was go time so what would happen is my you know my breathing would change just naturally and I wasn't really aware of it at that time which meant all of my upper body tension would change because of how we have to use different muscles to breathe with our upper chest which is what we do when we're in a stressed environment or a stressed uh, pressure environment now, that tightness that would start to creep in, the change in timing with my breathing completely changed the biomechanics of how I was setting myself up to execute that skill. So now when I was coming into the board, rather than actually being in this way that I practiced over and over and over again, my timing was subtly off. Now, in a sport like gymnastics, you know, just one millimeter, you know, or other sports, it's, you know, a degree is going to make the difference between whether you execute or whether you miss. Um, we see it with, you know, surgeons, for example, you know, in the ER where they get a little bit tense because it's a tough part of a procedure and they hold their breath or they start to breathe a bit shallow without being aware of it and their fine motor control goes or they get a little bit tighter through their upper body. You know, we see it with... Um, with law enforcement, military, with firearms and aim and all of that sort of stuff, you know, it's it's quite that common, it's that common thing. But unfortunately, we go straight to, oh, it must be in the mind. You know, you're mentally not tough. You've got to fix it from the mind without this amazing understanding of how physiology will drive that. Um, does, that does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It's funny. In CrossFit, the bar muscle up. 
is my nemesis. I have the strength to do every element of that movement. And I was one point where I could get it and it's just fallen out of my head. And I know damn well that the reason I can't get it is because I believe I can't get it. It's the only thing. Every element of that movement, I have the strength, I have the gymnastic ability, but it is my nemesis. So, so absolutely, I'm sure that if you break down how I'm holding myself and, you know, the, the, the little pieces of the movement, it's every piece is there. But in my mind, I've totally psyched myself out. So whatever my breathing, my posture looks like prior to that, I'm probably self-sabotaging every single time. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, and because of that little bit of extra tension, you tighten up your swing. You don't just let your body do what it knows exactly how to do. You basically get in the way of it. You know, one of my clients a couple of years ago was an NBA um, player um, played in a, in a team that had won a championship. And so he was a really good player. But his free throw percent at the time um, in training was probably the high 70s. But in a game situation, it would drop to 22%. Like that is, that's crazy. It's a closed skill. You know, he should be able to theoretically replicate that. But the problem that we often see um, is that we practice a skill in a relatively relaxed state, which means we also, you know, our breathing is just relaxed and, and there's no problems with that. So as an elite athlete, he knew exactly where to position his body to set up for executing that skill really well. And, and often, you know, that really elite level of what you do in performance, whatever your arena of performance is, you know, you just, you just intuitively know that your timing of where you need to position yourself. It just happens. Um, but for him, then when he would get an, on, on, on the line in a game, there was a couple of things. Firstly, he was, he was gassed, you know, because he was, he was working hard on, on the court anyway. So his breathing was a lot more elevated than what he had ever practiced in, in, in practice scenario. But more importantly, because he had so much noise in his head around what do my teammates think, um, you know, there's a couple of, um, you know, potentially, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people watching this on TV. Um, he was on contract year. Um, you know, there was all of this stuff. And then it was like, and now I've got to get it. I've got to, I've got to get this shot. Um, that, that arousal state because of the top down stuff that would then make him start to breathe even more shallow and tense meant his timing would just change really subtly and he would miss. And I actually had some footage of him standing side on on the line on, on in practice and then side on, you know, in a game scenario and just the subtle change in body position consistently, you know, between those two scenarios was enough that he was that he would consistently miss. And then, of course, he was like, oh, now he would get targeted because other teams knew he would he was, you know, a liability on the line because he would miss. Um, and it just ramped up and unfortunately it sets up a bit of a vicious circle where then it starts to feed itself. Um, now, we made some really quick changes to him around doing some work with him about just being able to replicate that same breathing pattern. So he actually did that intentionally so he could set his body into the same position that he'd practiced in. Um, and then more importantly, a whole lot of work on all of the, what I call it front loading, you know, all of that other stuff that was going on for him in life. He had girl problems and you know, contract stuff and all of that other stuff. I had to clean up that mess because what we often see in performance environments, and this is the thing that I think, um, again, um, we don't generally as a, as a performance population have a really deep lived awareness of and how it impacts us is we often think that performance under pressure happens in that moment of pressure you know and that that is where even though that's where the mistake will show up that's usually not where um, the solution has to go you know we have people coming into an environment into their performance arena already you know highly aroused under pressure life's busy you know there's stress there's this there's that there's the next thing whatever but we ha manage to keep a relative 
uh, in inverted commas, good control of our arousal state, you know, for the most part day to day. But then we get into that moment of execution and we're already so up, you know, in our arousal state that there's no buffer in the system for us to then cross what we, you know, what we call red line. You cross red line and, and usually when you cross your red line in terms of what your tolerance level is for your arousal state, that's when your mistakes happen. So your smart brain goes offline. You don't make those great decisions. You, you mis- misread the cues, you know, because your peripheral vision or your auditory cues, you've, you, you've, you can't, you know, you don't pick those up in the same way. Your timing changes, your fine motor skills change. And that's where we see the mistakes happen as a consequence of those things, you know. Um, but if we, if we were coming into some of those environments, I think, um, Karma, you know, better physio, you know, our physiology was calmer. Our arousal state was generally lower. Like I think about so much stuff with regards to gymnastics. You know, if the whole system had had been set up in a way that it was about uh, excellence, not not a fear driven culture. You know, where I where even in training, I was looking over at the other side of the gym, going, "Is the coach watching me? Because if the coach is watching me and I fail, I'm going to get yelled at." You know, crazy stuff like that, right? Um, then we've actually, if we're coming into our performance arena, actually from a physiological perspective in a much calmer state. And I don't, again, I don't mean Zen mentally and emotionally calm. I mean, in terms of that arousal state calm, um, we've now got buffer in the system to handle that go moment. You know, for all of us, our, our performance arena, there is a go moment. We have to, we will feel, we will feel that higher arousal state when it's when it's game on you know or when things go bad or wrong or whatever happens but we need to have enough buffer in our system so that we will still stay under our red line in those environments rather than crossing it and making those mistakes but unfortunately like I did I was trying to solve that problem with my b-mount for example in the moment of competition you know and go what do I need to do in the competition now to calm myself down which was a little bit helpful, but not really helpful in the bigger picture because it wasn't consistent. I would have been so much better off doing a whole lot of other work elsewhere away from competition so that when I came into the competition and I felt, excuse me, the more the normal nerves of, of competition, which is really normal, um, then that wouldn't, that, that wouldn't have tripped me over the line. Does that make sense? No, it does completely. And it makes me think about, um, I had a, a baseball player turned coach, uh, Logan Gelbrick, and he talked about one specific game where he was in flow state. And I actually had a kind of a couple of flow state mo- uh, moments in, in the fire service and, and definitely in martial arts as well. But he broke it down. He's like, you know, you have to have training. That's the first thing you got to have those reps, which, you know, obviously you did in gymnastics. You know, I did at the time in martial arts. And I think, you know, if we're diligent, we do in EMS and fire as well. Um, you've got to have stress. Now, as you said, you know, then your, your mental um, state is then going to figure out if that becomes distress or eustress. And his whole thing was having that calm mind, not being like namaste, but, you know, being in that place where you're present. Um, and, you know, I, I saw where that was, you know, absolutely all those three things were there in that moment that I had in flow state. And then, you know, when you're on the back foot, I've had scenes in the fire service where it was an absolute cluster, you know, and we could never catch up. But I think what, as you said, if you're talking really long term, what really illustrates it well is one of the stories you told on one of the other podcasts about, I believe it was an American football player, like a Samoan background. Um, and there, there were, there were many pressures externally, even from his sport. And I think that's, as you said, sometimes we focus so much on the skill, we're forgetting the much bigger picture of that, that Jenga tower of stressors that are behind the scenes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I think we do as organisations, and I don't think it's sports specific, it's certainly in fireys and police is that if we see performance drop off or we see behavior issues or we see poor job execution or mistakes on the job or whatever is that we we focus only perhaps on what's actually happening for that individual related to their arena of performance and that we don't we don't necessarily think about that much bigger picture um and so that footballer he was um Australian professional uh, rugby league. So, um, but he was a he was a Samoan Samoan guy, and so he would get into a game situation, and he and he just couldn't breathe. You know, he'd come off the field, and he'd be a little bit blue around the lips. He was struggling to get air into his chest, and they um, this has been happening for a few weeks, and they'd cleared him medically for heart conditions, um, respiratory issues, almost you know everything. He'd had the full full works. They couldn't find any reason as to why this was happening, but it was consistently happening for him to the point that they were going to have to drop him. And he was a really talented player on a really good contract. And often what happens for many of our professional athletes in different sports, and I know it's very similar in the US, um, is that many of our top athletes have come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And there's a lot of family pressure that um, that person is now uh, supporting the, the family and the extended family often um, because now they're the, the big contract earner. Um, and so for this this you know beautiful beautiful person had so much pressure on him to be supporting his family um but some of his family had there were some gang affiliations there um and so he had this internal conflict around well i want to support my family but i can't in good conscience be supporting the gangs because that's not in alignment with who i am and who i want to be and this was just eating away at him inside. And, and often Pacific Island is very humble. They, they, they're not, they don't talk about a lot of the sort of stuff. They internalize it a lot. And again, that's a, a generalization, I know. But um, so he certainly didn't feel like he could talk with any of his teammates about what was going on for him, you know. And uh, even at the point when they were saying, look, we're about to, to, to drop you. And I don't think he necessarily had that, an understanding of that either, um, that, that how much that was actually impacting him. So um, I got flown down um, to, to see him and do some work with him. And we just talked a little bit about what was happening for him on the field, what we was experiencing with his breathing, nice and safe. And then we dove really deep as to, okay, well, what's really going on? You know, because usually people will talk about the, the, the superficial stuff and then you have to go straight, straight to the deep stuff because that's usually where it'll sit. Um, and so basically for him, his breathing was what I call a pressure release valve on his psyche. There was so much going on for him, um, so much noise and so much internal conflict conflict that he didn't know how to articulate and he didn't know the impact that that was having for him with regards to his physiology his breathing you know he was already breathing intense before he went to the field and now in a game situation where he needed to breathe more and deeper and faster and harder he got himself to a point where there was basically nowhere for him to go with his breathing you know he's doing what we call breath stacking so breathing in on top of in on top of in on top of in and he just he got to a point where his brain was going i can't breathe in anymore and that sets off panic and 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 then it came off so anyway so we, we talked about what was going on from the unpack that and then he I, the next day i went and ran some drills with him on the field and just taught him a couple of places of where and how to breathe um and the reason we really did that was more so that he could say to his teammates oh she just taught me to breathe um you know nice and safe again so he wouldn't lose face with any of his his teammates in that sort of environment um he played the next game never had a problem um after that you know because all that basically did was coming into a game situation his whole arousal state because he'd actually been able to express some of that stuff we didn't necessarily fix it you know at all it wasn't a therapy session 
but it was drawing his awareness to go see all of this noise and messiness that's going on for you in life. This is what, what it's doing and how it's impacting your arousal state. And then when you come into your performance arena, which is physiologically effectively a battle for you, and you're having to go up a few more notches yet again, you've got no buffer in the system and you're just crossing red line and it's all falling apart. And suddenly that just helped him go, oh, this is not in my head. I'm not mentally weak. You know, this is not a, this is not, not something that I, you know, that I'm never going to crack. Um, and it just helped him. And even that took the pressure off to go, oh, I'm all good. Um, gave him some strategies to fix it and, and, and away he goes. Um, but I love what you were saying about that baseball player where I think that's another misconception that we have around performance in high pressure environments that we can train the skill and get really good at the skill and technically and tactically. And then it's naturally going to translate into the high pressure environments. And that's not the case at all because learning how we react to pressure is a learned skill in and of itself. And we have to play with that and we have to test it. Um, and we have to know what are some strategies that I can, you know, first of all, what happens to me in those environments? And then more importantly, and how do I, what are some skills I can use in the moment to stay in control of that state? Too often what happens is we get people who are really good at the technical, tactical skills, and they might be good in, in lower sort of performance arenas, and we throw them into the big moment. And just that level of, that jump in terms of arousal state is so big for them. And they're not trained as to how to do that. Or they feel fear and anxiety and nerves and pressure, which is really normal in an environment that's outside your comfort zone, you know, and we forget that and we forget that we need to teach people that. Um, but then they start to, to self-doubt themselves and go, oh, I'm feeling really nervous or anxious. That must mean something's about to go bad or something's about to go wrong or I'm not cut out for this or everybody else looks confident and I'm not, you know. And then they second-guess themselves and sometimes that second-guessing and self-doubting undermines things even more rather than them being able to stay really present and go, what is the task at hand and what do I need to execute on, you know, take control of those take control of those execution steps, understanding that that fear or that anxiety or those nerves or whatever is really normal. I was talking to a bunch of guys just a couple of weeks ago, that um, is a uh, elite military unit. And, you know, these guys have mentally and emotionally really tough, you know, past selection to get into these units. We know they're mentally and emotionally tough, right? And we're just talking about to, to them and saying, you know, you're going to be exposed to some things, even the, the next phase of their training. You're going to be exposed to some things that are going to push you outside your comfort zone. You're probably going to have fear even in some of those environments. You're going to be really nervous, really anxious, either whether you're going to fail are you going to let a teammate down, you know, whatever. Um, and it's really normal that you have that response. And it's actually really okay that you have that response. But by the way, here's some things that you can do to make sure that that response doesn't take control of you. But I think because we often don't have that conversation with people to say, it's really normal and okay that you feel that. And by the way, here's some strategies to control of it. When they get into that moment, they think they're the only one thinking that and feeling that. Does that make sense? And then they go, oh, I'm not, you know, everyone else is really confident. I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. Um, and just a relief on their face. It's like, I could just see it as like, oh, thank goodness. Cause I thought I was the only one who was feeling that, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's very important. And I think fear comes in different ways, especially in the fire service. Like I never really, I genuinely never really got much fear in the fires. For whatever reason, I mean, I don't know, I can't explain it, but I didn't, especially for a four-year-old that almost died in a fire, you'd think there'd be an element of, of fear. But the things sure. that would give me the pucker factor were like pediatric cardiac arrests, you know? So now mm. there's a child, mm. they teach us all the time, look, a child is a small, you know, small adult, you know, it's not too dissimilar, follow these algorithms. And, you know, but 
I had to take a breath, literally. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But there was a time I was handed a dead child from a screaming mother and I literally had to go, what's the acronym? ABC. <sighs> okay, airway. And then off we went. But it was, I never had that on a structure fire, you know? So it's crazy that I think that is a really important conversation because what you think might scare you might not actually be what scares you at all. It might be something completely different. And if you haven't had that that discussion as you just mentioned and giving yourself permission to be scared permission to just take a moment take a breath grab hold of yourself then again as i mentioned earlier you're going to be on the back foot and now it's going to be a cluster and in our profession someone might die so yeah it's a very important conversation yeah and i think that's a fantastic point that you've just raised too is that a single individual will have different tolerance points you know when we talk about that red line you know, your threshold to handling high pressure is going to be different in different environments. So it's not that if you're brave and strong and able to handle fear and pressure that there's an expectation you should be able to do that across the across everything you get exposed to. Because I think that's also something that messes often with us as alpha performers too, is that we think, well, I can do tough stuff. I can do difficult stuff. I know how to push myself into that hurt box and stay there and be in the pain and handle tough and difficult things that perhaps many people would run the other way or whatever, right? And then we get put into another environment that we're like, oh, wow, I feel like I feel nervous and anxious here. Uh-oh, all my courage and bravery is gone, you know, or whatever. And we and we don't really think about that, you know. Um, and I think that's important. And, and, and I think in terms of that scenario, you'd probably practice so many times and been exposed to so many times, you know, the, the skills and the executions and whatever of the structural fire, right? But up until that point, how many dead babies had you been handed? You no, know, probably exactly. not many, right? And so, and so you go, okay, well, I can almost guarantee the next time that happens, it won't rattle you as much. And then the next time it happens, it won't rattle you as much. And because you get exposure to that stressful moment. And I think um, that's why, even still now, you know, well, after my elite, elite sport days, obviously, I still try to chase environments that make me feel uncomfortable um, or that I will feel that anxiety or nerves because I want to keep it's a, it's a skill to hone you know, to go, okay, well, there's my response, but here's how I take control of my response. Yeah. Well, I heard a phrase the other day, seek discomfort. And it's actually a group that work with, um, I mean, they do all kinds of stuff. They just, they literally do that. They'll do really horrible things and, you know, overcome their fears. And they work with Wim Hof. And that's how I found them. They did a documentary. But um, we have seen a trend in some agencies in in fire certainly and in, in definitely in in uh, law enforcement some agencies where there's a kind of um, resistance to realism in training to stress you know not, not, i hate the word inoculation because especially in this current 18 months we know inoculation isn't <laughs> isn't a definite anyway sure <laughs> that's a whole sure. other conversation um but uh, you know the 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 ability to perform under stress like we said now what i'm seeing a lot of is checking boxes for example, yeah. my last place, we couldn't train if it's too hot, in the, in the dark, in the rain. You know, it was pathetic. No other word. It was absolutely pathetic. Yeah. So when, God forbid, something happens there, falling to your level of training is everyone sitting around with a, with a glass of orange juice and taking it in turns to do this thing once. So through the psychology lens and through the work that you've done, what is the science behind the importance of training under stress, under duress, and, and creating that buffer, as you said, so that when, God forbid, it happens in the real world, your baseline is a lot higher than it would have been if you just walked through the steps? 
Yeah, and I love that saying. I use it often is you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your training. And so what you've trained yourself to do, unfortunately, in those tired moments, in those high pressure moments, that's where you'll default to, um, particularly at the back end when you are exhausted and you haven't got the same motivation and hoorah that you might have had at the beginning, you know. Um, But, you know, I often think of it in or use the analogy talking about the physical training component. You know, if you train physically, um, no matter what your sport is. Um, and you get into the hurt box and, and you'll be able to identify this absolutely with, with CrossFit, right? You get in the hurt box and you've got a choice. You're either going to stay there and you're going to work out how you navigate that. I call it dancing with pain. You know, you, you, you learn how to work with it and use it to your advantage, that darkness. But many people will actually retreat from that a little bit and not necessarily completely back off, but they'll feel the fear of that's so uncomfortable and I have to just back off a little bit. Now, the challenge with that is that what you've actually done is you've trained yourself that when it gets tough, when it gets really tough and dark and you're not sure and you've got the head demons kicking in going, I can't keep doing this, you know, this is too hard, I haven't, you know, whatever, whatever the head demons are telling you in that moment that you've actually trained yourself to to back off from that dark moment rather than actually going, well, how do I stay really present with it and work with it to my advantage? Because funnily enough, the longer you stay with it and work with it, you actually normally find a way to navigate through it and come out the other side, right? Now, even then in the in the moment that you need that skill, so let's now then translate that into that pointy end of a, a performance arena, um, you know, experience where, you know, the darks and the depths are there. And some people go, yeah, but in that moment, you know, I'll, I'll dig deep. And it's like, well, you might, but there's going to be a second or two that you're actually going to retreat because that's what your instinctual training is to do, is to actually back off a little bit. And that might be a split second or two and, and, and you've lost, you know, that was a critical second or two that you actually needed to be able to be present and move forward with that. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're creating patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think, I mean, I think we've got this whole thing around pressure and stuff really. Yeah, I do. I do some ice bath training and, and um, got into an ice bath just recently that was really, it was one and a half degrees Celsius, which is way colder than I'd ever jumped in before. Um, and, um, you know, just that wave of, I could feel that physiological panic kicking in, you know, mentally and emotionally, I knew it was all good. But even then my brain was going, get out of here. You know, this is stupid, you, don't, you know, whatever. Um, and but I could feel my heart beating and my breathing was tight and I had to work really hard. But the thing is, I stayed really present with that. And funnily enough, after about, you know, and, and those of you, your listeners that are very familiar with, you know, either, and I wasn't doing Wim Hof breathing, but, you know, I think he's popularized a lot of stuff with this. Um, but, but when you sit with it and you stay present with it and you work with it and you don't give in to that fear response, you actually get to a really calm place out the back end of that where you're totally in control with that. But most people, or many people will, will give in too soon. As soon as they start to feel that, that fear response, physiological fear response kicking in, that lizard brain going, get out of here, it's a dangerous situation, they will just, you know, retreat completely mentally and emotionally with regards to that. They might not physically mental, they might not physically retreat because they've trained themselves to stay there, right, um, particularly in your sort of environment, but there's something about mentally or emotionally or physiologically with that control that's backed off and, that's, and that can be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Or more importantly, not aware that it's still it's still escalating. You know, so for for your guys, particularly the fire service, you know, does that mean you're going through air way too fast? 
you know, are you burning through a tank way too fast and you're having to then get out at a critical moment because, you because you you know, your, your BA tank's empty or, or whatever. You know, there's a lot of other consequences to that. Yeah, well, that's just a, a point that I've talked about with obviously mainly the, the breath gurus that I've had on here. Um, but it's something that we barely talk about at all in the fire service. And when we're in what we call IDLH in a fire or anywhere that we're not able to breathe natural ambient air, the only air on planet Earth that is available to us is strapped to our back. So our overall cardiovascular condition, our actual, you know, emotional response, our, our physiological, um, biomechanics of breathing, these are all imperative to us making it out, making a rescue or, you know, calling a mayday or dying there in the fire. So what have, what have you seen as far as, you know, what's your lens on, on, um, the tactical athletics or athletes, excuse me, out there, um, and the tools that you use to guide them to be more efficient with their breath and, and keep that, that emotional, uh, kind of gauge to where it needs to be for whatever they're doing at the moment. Mm. I think when it comes to breathing, I look at breathing a little bit differently than perhaps some of the things that are out uh, in the common um, you know, media around at the moment where, yeah, it's absolutely the side of it that's state control. But often the stuff that's taught at the moment is almost a skill or a strategy to, to do um, at the moment of pressure, you know, whether it be box breathing, whether it be Wim Hof, whether it be, and, you know, box breathing is, is, is as it's used commonly is not actually how it was designed to originally be used um, with the seals and the timing is, is a little bit off. Um, but it's usually a skill or a strategy. I call it a get out of jail card. You know, it's I'm in I, I'm in that moment of high arousal and pressure and I need something to get myself out of that. So they can be helpful techniques. And I think the conversations that are happening, um, you know, more in the performance media at the moment around using breathing, it's, it's awesome because it's drawing awareness to it. So that's a great start. But we often forget that it's actually how we're breathing when we're not thinking about breathing. You know, it's what we call our default breathing pattern. That is the thing that, is going to set people up for performance in those high pressure moments. We do 20,000 breaths in a day, you know, and so it's actually where and how you're doing those 20,000, you know, is going to be more impactful on your arousal state and your physical execution and whether you get dead legs because you've run out of, you know, power to your legs or whatever, which is something related to inefficient breathing or you'll pull blood away from your performance muscles just to make your breathing muscles work harder so there's so much more to breathing than just uh the state control side of it you know there's the there's the biomechanics of it we're talking before about the gymnastics stuff or the basketball player um so a lot of that work is actually about okay well how are you breathing you know have you done any work to actually reset your default breathing in the first place do you know how to nose breathe and belly breathe when you're not even thinking about breathing and the challenge with that is with breathing we've got conscious control but for the most part it's subconscious so i could say you know your listeners if i said to them um hold your breath they could do it if i said breathe through your nose they could do it breathe into your belly they could probably do it but as soon as I get distracted by a shiny thing, they're reverting back to what their brainstem is saying, this is how I breathe to stay alive. And because the brainstem metronome for breathing is so finely tuned that says, if you breathe in this way, you will stay alive. Then when we mess with that, if it's even if it's taking someone who is an inefficient breather, so let's say they're a mouth breather, upper chest breather by default, and most people that have been exposed to high pressure high stakes environments over a period of time will naturally default to that being their breathing pattern without realizing that they might be nose breathing but they're their upper chest when they're sitting in a chair and your listeners can just do a self-check even now you know when we're, they're listening is 
is their upper chest just gently raising and falling as they're breathing. Now, as soon as they've become aware of it, they'll probably go, oh, no, I'm breathing into my belly, you know, because they'll, they'll think about breathing properly. Um, but it's just to catch yourself out with that. Now, that might be their default. Now, when they then try to um, we try to reset that, it actually feels really uncomfortable for most people. They feel because they're not getting the, the movements of their chest that they're used to with their upper, upper chest. And so their brain goes, oh, this doesn't feel right. You're not breathing how I know how to breathe. Please go back to breathing you know, shallow and fast, right? So that becomes, that's, it's a hard habit to break. But the challenge with that, right, is if you've got someone who is an upper chest breather, um, you know, all the time, and then they go into an environment where, you know, as you, as you say, now you're in an IDLH situation and, and you the only oxygen you've got is on your back um, and that arousal, you start to breathe shallow on top of that. You're breathing shallow on top of an already inefficient breathing pattern let alone the pressure of the, you know, the apparatus actually on your chest and, and your rib cage not being able to move properly because you've got the compression of the gear that you're wearing, you know, so there's that side of it as well. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff that's attached to that. So, so absolutely some of those breathing strategies are critical, but actually rather than taking, you know, deep breaths or holding or whatever, it, it's actually more about can you breathe, take some breaths down into your diaphragm. Um, and it, can only, it only has to be three to five. But actually taking a diaphragm breath will turn on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your calm nervous system, rather than when you breathe up a chest, what you're doing is you're cueing your sympathetic nervous system or your fight and flight nervous system. So you can see where that's problematic if you've got someone who their default breathing pattern is 20,000 breaths all with their upper chest. And every time they do that, that's a message into their limbic system saying threat, danger, threat, danger, threat, danger, because it's been cued at that really low level all the time, which is why we talk about someone who's got that breathing pattern is coming into their performance arena already in that heightened state, as opposed to someone whose you know, default breathing pattern is diaphragmatic. So they're actually getting the cue, we're safe, we're okay, we're safe, we're okay, there's no threat, we're safe, we're okay, at a really primal deep level, okay? So in that moment, um, yeah, we'll absolutely talk about um, if it's a performance athlete who's running, moving fast, we'll talk about doing a reset, you know, really hard breath out, getting the air out of the chest so they're actually making space to take more breath in. Um, it's very difficult in the middle of a, you know, when you're gassed and moving hard and fast to go, hang on a second, I'm going to just, you know, nose breathe and breathe into my belly, you know, on the on the field, for example. Um, but certainly in, in, in firefighters, um, there's moments that they could potentially do that. Um, so, but it's more, I call it, it's more holistic than that in terms of doing a bot, doing a reset. I call it get out of jail card. You've crossed red line. The critical differences between being in that heightened state of arousal or that calmer nervous system is where you look, what you think and where you're breathing to. So rather than just the breathing thing, sometimes actually bringing your peripheral vision online, just being aware of it because that shuts down in a, in a high pressure environment, right? So um, really quick body scan of, okay, I'm just going to either lift my eyes a little bit. Or I'm going to just be aware of my peripheral vision. I'm going to take three breaths down into my belly. They're not big, deep breaths. It's just that awareness of breathing down there and having one gratitude thought that you've actually trained yourself to be able to use in that moment. Now it might be, um, and I'm not talking crystals and you know, unicorns and all that sort of stuff, but just something that, that has you trigger again into that calmer nervous system. You get really good at being able to deploy that in, in a really quick moment, you know, and it's amazing how that'll just pull you under red line, um, which means your smart brain comes online again. It means that your peripheral vision starts to open up again. So you're reading the situation that, that much better. Um, 
you know, and you're kind of in that karma, karma state. Now you can train yourself to be able to do that literally in three breaths. It's not a, it's not a time consuming thing. And you can also do it as you're executing the skill that you're already trying to work on, for example. Okay. But you've got to then train that like on any skill, you train it at lower level, lower threat environments. So, you know, stopped at the traffic lights, you know, or you're driving along and some, you know, idiot cuts you off in the traffic and you feel that response, you know, you feel that response that you want to, you know, swear at him and then you just actually can use that same same skill where you go hang on a sec rather than reacting to things I'm going to take control of my reaction de-escalate my state a little bit here's my strategy that, that I use in that moment and you start to um you start to deploy and play with it in those low level moments so it's there when you need it in those big moments but the I, I want to keep coming back to that importance and that awareness of breath and breathing 24 7 do you know what I mean? an example I often use with that is a a pro golfer I was working with many years ago and he had his pro card up in the States um, and he hit a form slump, couldn't make the cut, ended up moving back home. He was in debt um, and he had been working with a sports psych for about eight years prior to that point. She had actually recommended that he catch up with me about a year before he finally walks in the door um, and he comes in and golfers are really polite. So so because he'd already made the appointment, he decided he should still come in. But he'd made, he said to me, look, I've made the decision this morning. I'm done with golf. I just can't crack this. And I was like, okay. He goes, and to be honest, he goes, I don't need to learn that breathing crap because the site's been doing it with me for eight years and it makes no difference. I'm like, awesome. Game on, you know. So awesome. So tell me how the site's been using breathing with you. And he's like, well, as part of my pre-shot routine, I step off the ball, I take three nice big deep breaths, I step in, I dress the ball, I play my shot. And I get him to demo the breaths and they're very much these big, you know, big upper chest breaths that people often think to do when they're told to take a deep breath. I said, like, okay, awesome. I said, so how, how many shots in a pro round? He looks at me like I'm an idiot and he said, well, 70. So awesome. I said, how long are you on the course for? And he's like, well, four to four and a half hours. I said, excellent. So what you're telling me is of that four and a half thousand breaths that you're doing on the course, 210 of them are designed to set your state and the other 99.6% you're leaving completely to chance. And he kind of looks at me like, oh, I haven't got this breathing so well sorted, <laughs> have I? I was like, not at all. You know, it's because what was happening for him was as he was walking between each shot, you know, he was so stuck in his head about, oh, I've missed and what happens if I did all the stuff that you and I were talking about before between the bar muscle up or my gymnastics experience, you know, the noise in the head was winding him up because our physiology doesn't understand the difference between thinking about something and really being in the environment. And that's possibly another conversation that's relevant for, you know, particularly firefighters and, and, and law enforcement too, is how often we play things through our mind over and over again and that escalates our state as well anyway or diverting come back to that story um and so he was walking and 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 it was changing as he was walking you know the cortisol into his system the the ramping up of arousal state would change his breathing um and it would get tighter and so same scenario as that nba player he'd practiced his shots in a very relaxed state and he knew exactly where to position himself to play the shot that he wanted to play. But now when he was in his go moment, because of the heightened arousal state that changed his breathing pattern, which created that tension in all of the muscles that he needs in his upper chest and neck and shoulders to take his swing with, the biomechanics of the swing was actually quite different, which meant he wasn't playing the shots that he'd practiced. He was playing almost a completely different shot and surprise, surprise, the ball wasn't going where he'd intended it to go. And does that make sense? And so that's yeah. a, I think I, I often use that as an example of the difference between 
you know, if you've done, you know, 30 seconds or a couple of sets of 30 seconds of Wim Hof breathing um, or, you know, four minutes of box breathing, you might, you, you haven't done many breaths in that time. Do you know what I mean? Like let's take four minutes of box breathing. You've probably only done, you know, well, certainly less, less than 50, you know, 16 odd breaths. You know, it's not, it's not many breaths that you're taking in that four minutes or, or whatever it is versus the 20,000 breaths that you're doing um, that are actually going to be setting up your state. Um, and so, you know, for, for, your, for your listeners, um, even just thinking about there's a whole lot of work they can do to actually reset the default breathing pattern does take a little bit of a nuance of work. And, and that's some of the space that I guess the, the science, you know, is. And, and I do a lot of work in that space with giving people strategies for how to do that. But even just, you know, them being aware of, well, how am I breathing when I'm sitting with my kids reading a book? You know, how am I breathing when I'm driving into my work environment? How am I breathing when I'm, you know, just sitting and chilling watching TV? Um, those sorts of things uh, are actually a way that you can, uh, you know, reset, take control of your arousal state rather than most of us just think that it is just what it is and we just react to it um, and we can't actually do anything about it. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned as well breathing through your nose into your belly. Um, I had Brian McKenzie on the first interview we did. He talked about that and that was a big aha moment for me. And then my son, sadly, is is a mouth breather, you know, a lot of the time. And he was very congested when he was younger. So I think it set that pattern. But, um, yeah. you know, seeing how many people do mouth breathe just with zero exertion. And then certainly, like I watched the guys, I, I warm up with in my jiu-jitsu gym. Very, very simple, easy warm up. And people are huffing and puffing through their mouths. And just being conscious, I found just the one thing of just saying, all right, I'm going to breathe through my nose until... I'm at such a high intensity that I feel like I need to mouth breathe. That for me has been, has been incredible. And then adding to that, um, just on the way to calls, I would do a form of box breathing, I guess you could say. And even now with EMOMs, I'll, I'll work out, I'll try and keep my mouth closed, but I love EMOMs for the fire service because you got 30 second high intensity and about 30 seconds to try and bring that breath and that heart rate down. So we you know, say, for example, we, shoulder a bunch of hose we climb three flights of stairs you have a moment while we set up to bring your breath down then we take the door we, we advance and then maybe we're at the fire now but actually putting water on the fire is not much exertion so again you've got a moment to take a breath or you're on a cardiac arrest you were on the chest and now you've cycled out and now you're on the airway i mean we do have these little moments where we can kind of reset but like you said you have to have that practice in the background and you know, listening to you. This isn't things that I, you know, my revelation, this is adding all these people, including your work to my own repertoire. But yeah, I mean, just having that practice and then be able to tap into that practice when we are, are in that emergency, in my opinion, maximizes the ability to be as close as a flow state as you can possibly get when, again, lives are at stake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, just to reinforce to your listeners that in that moment, that pause moment, that it's more important to think about the breath out than breath in, you know, so a little mantra often, you know, that can get stuck in your head in a good way is when in doubt, breathe out. You know, the analogy I'll often, if I can demonstrate visually what I'll use and I'll try and describe it is a, imagine a water bottle. And if you're breathing really efficiently at rest, and that means in the bottom third of your lungs, that's where the best gas exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide out is because the lungs are bigger at the bottom than they are at the top. So at rest, so low level activity, even up to about 60% of our maximum capacity, we want to be breathing at the bottom of our lungs through our nose is most optimal. Now, that's like at the, the water bottle, imagine the bottom third of the lung, uh, the water bottle being filled, you know, and just with a normal tidal breath, which means a normal in and out breath, 
depending on your frame size, that's only about half a litre. And we do about, you know, five to six litres in a minute, just gently in and out of our lungs, ideally through our nose because it's really efficient. Um, but when we start to exercise and we move harder and faster, the first thing we'll start to do is to breathe a little bit deeper and then we'll start to breathe faster. Now, really interesting, that respiratory response to exercise actually starts to kick in just with anticipation of exercise um, rather than necessarily as a direct response to oxygen demand and CO2 clearance. But what will start to happen is we'll get to that moment, you know, we'll start exercising, breathe a bit deeper, harder, faster. We'll start to expand into the top of the water bottle because now we need the top, the muscles in the top of our chest to lift our lungs from the top. Pressure is all about volume and pressure. We have to somehow pull our lung open to get air in. So we'll pull the lungs from the top and the bottom. And, and you know, a, a, an average male athlete might end up needing about 160 to 180 litres of air in and out of their lungs in a minute at, at peak workloads. It's a huge shift from six litres at rest okay so with that water bottle analogy as long as you're breathing at the bottom of the the water bottle before you start your thing then you've got the space to start to move into when you need more fast big air okay but if you're already at the top of the water bottle so to speak as your default automatic breathing pattern because the high pressure environments you might have had a son you know your son's a good example he's been stuffed up through his sinuses as a kid so he's got that habit of being a mouth breather it can be broken noses it can be broken ribs it can be you know previous respiratory trauma i think we're seeing a lot of that even with long covid symptoms you know all of this stuff the stuff that resets that default pattern to being up at your chest well now when you come to that water bottle analogy if i'm taking my half a liter with every breath near the top when i try to go deeper harder and faster I, you know, I, I run out of space, you know, so I end up, I'm, I'm breathing and I'm trying to get that deeper breath in, but it's on top of this water bottle, it's already full, okay? And so I get to a point where I'm pulling and I'm working hard, but, but nothing's happening. And it's not because I can't breathe, it's because I literally haven't got space to put more air into. It's like that water bottle, if it's full of water, I can't put more water in there, you know? There's nothing wrong with the bottle, it's just full. And so if I had another glass of water and I said, okay, James, this water in, in this glass has to end up in this bottle. What are you going to do with what's already in the bottle? You've got, to, you've got to empty it out, right? You've got to somehow make space for this new stuff to get into. Now, because of how our brain and, our, and everything works near it from a um, respiratory physiology perspective, our brain wants to keep breathing in until it feels like it's felt that new volume of air come in. And if it's not getting it because we're so full, it's, that's what starts to trigger panic. I can't breathe properly. I'm getting gassed. I'm, I'm and air hunger starting to kick in. Uh, 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 and and what will happen with the brain in terms of there's a there's a model of fatigue that talks about the central governor model of fatigue, um, where if one of our systems uh, is giving our brain a whole lot of input that it's being overloaded, our body and brain will actually have to pull back on that somewhere else. So typically, what we'll see is we'll say, okay. I'm feeling gassed and I'm working really hard with my breathing. I have to back off my physical intensity because I somehow need to manage and, and make sure I stay alive as a, as a human. So I can't let you work any harder if this is already at a really high cost respiratory-wise. Now, often that's a misread for many of our, our performers because, that, because of their inefficient breathing, okay? But in that moment, if I actually, rather than thinking about breathing in, I focused on breathing out. You know, I emptied the water bottle. I did a forced, hard, you know, breath out. And I don't want to do it over headphones because it'll blast your listeners' ears <laughs> out. But it's a really hard, you know, it's a, I call it a reset breath. It's that really hard for, like, get the air out, sort of purse lips, and then work to control the breathing thereafter, but not by taking big breaths in 
actually by working out how do I actually slow my breath down by focusing on the out breath and the in breath when it comes in, actually putting that down into my belly. Um, so the in breath does that. Our, our brain and body naturally knows how to breathe unless we're unconscious with a brainstem injury, unless we get in the way because of the mechanics of what I've just described and sort of getting in the way. Okay, so that's I think a really important thing is to focus on that out breath, um, slowing it down. You know, in the in the heat of the moment, you know, when, when you're really sort of gassed and working hard, focusing on slowing the out breath down and controlling that and getting the air out of your chest and then down into your belly. Um, as best as possible is is really powerful, especially if you've just climbed, you know, those few flights of stairs, you guess, you know, you're naturally going to want to, every every part of you wants to breathe in more, but it's it's counterintuitive to breathe out, but that's actually where it's important. But even more importantly for those guys, it would actually be using their breath control on the way up the stairs, you know, focusing on actually breathe out, breathe out with exertion, you know, having that control going up the stairs so that I don't get to the point at the top that now I'm I'm gassed and I'm sucking for air. Now, is there an element, you know, understanding, you know, the carbon dioxide is a trigger for breath and, you know, obviously a hypervent, for example, will blow off the CO2. Um, with that inefficient, almost like hoarding of breath volume, is there uh, an element of that one good exhalation of kind of blowing off some of that CO2 to get it back to the level it should be? Or is it more purely just, just volume and, and biomechanics? It's more from my in my world um, and the world I work in and the you know the stuff I do with people. It's more about the biomechanics and the volume and how things work in the in, in the lungs. Um, you know, from that we've got receptors in our lungs that, that pick up movement and we call them mechanoreceptors and we've got chemoreceptors, which is you know for the CO two and those sorts of things. Um, and we don't actually get we. We get a breathing message where our brain goes, okay, contract the muscles, pull the lungs open, create a pressure change, volume change, air flows. Um, we don't usually at rest get a breathe out message. We just get a stop breathing in message. It's basically, I've got enough. You can stop breathing in. The, the messages to the muscles switches off. The muscles relax. The lungs deflate. It's kind of like a balloon when you blow it up and you hold it up in the air and you don't tie the balloon off and you let it go. The elastic recoil of the balloon will deflate itself. Really similar, the elastic recoil of our lungs will actually deflate themselves just with normal resting breathing. We will put force behind that when we're working hard and fast. We'll use our, our abdominals to, you know, to contract our lungs to get air out faster. Um, but the thing with, you know, with that water bottle analogy, it's not actually so much that we're, that it's, um, you know, you're holding on more air from that, from that CO2 perspective. It's more the the volume where it's like, well, I can't pull any harder. You know, the, your accessory breathing muscles, which are the ones that will actually make your upper chest move, they're like your normal skeletal muscles. They're not built to do 20,000 contractions through a day, right? Your diaphragm is. It's the fiber type that will just, there's no problems for that muscle. But for everyone who's an upper chest breather, they use their pecs, they use the muscles up the front of the neck, the muscles up the back of their shoulders um, and up into the back of their neck. They'll use those muscles subtly just to breathe with at rest. Now, that would be like me giving you a paperclip and saying, do 20,000 bicep curls with a paperclip and now go and, you know, go do Fran, you know, like or whatever, right? Where, where it's like, um, it's, for your listeners who don't know CrossFit, that's a CrossFit workout, not a person, um, a you know, but, but it's to go <laughs> horrible crossword worker, you know, but it's like, you're already pre-fatigued with those for in, in the breathing scenario. It's like, you're already pre-fatigued with those muscles before you get into go moment. And now you're asking them to go. So the ability for those muscles to execute their physical job, we see it in swimmers a lot, you know, they haven't got 
that they're a poor breather at rest and now they need their upper limb for their sport. They're already pre-fatigued as they go in to execute their thing. So they haven't got the same upper limb power. Um, they're more prone to upper limb injuries, those sorts of things. Um, the thing coming back to your question about CO2 is that if you're actually naturally an upper chest breather by default, right, rather than your normal respiratory rate at rest being around the 10 to 12 breaths a minute, you're far more likely to have an elevated resting respiratory rate can sit anywhere from 18 to 22 to 24. Um, you know, I've worked a lot with um, first responders before that, that they don't have any breathing symptoms, but when they come to see me, just their respiratory rate is it's shallow and fast, which means they're actually naturally breathing off more CO2 at rest, um, you know, than what they're used to because hyperventilation by medical definition is breathing in excess of metabolic demands. It isn't having a panic attack, okay? Um, so if you're just sitting in a chair but your respiratory rate's 22, 24 breaths a minute, that's heightened compared to what is optimal because you're not producing that much CO2. So that's where you start to get some of those other symptoms associated with that. Um, sometimes those people, when they start moving and exercising, that will actually start to, 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 to normalise that. Um, but yeah, so that's just something to, to be aware of. And those people, you'll see them often do oh, a deep sigh every now and then or a big yawn every now and then um, because that is their brain trying to do a reset of the CO2, O2 balance because they've actually been breathing off more CO2. They want to be a, do a big breath to get more oxygen and, and kind of normalize that clearance momentarily and then they're back to that default pattern. Okay. Because the reason I ask that is when I do you know higher intensity workouts and I say it's a... Uh, you know, a round of whatever and then a break, I've noticed I will do a big exhalation to kind of reset before the next exercise Perfect. or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, I think certainly there's a component of that from the from the CO2 perspective, but I think we've actually got a lot more tolerance to, to CO2, O2 than what we think we have. You know, it is often, especially if a workout that you're trying to use those arms then for, you know, you might be coming in off a 400-meter run, so you're gassed and you're possibly moving with your upper chest more, and now you come in and brace on a bar and you need to actually lock all of those muscles in. But actually, those are the muscles that want to most be moving to try and lift your upper chest to take those breaths, you know. And then the brain goes, and this is what we see with guys who are in environments, tactical environments where they're having to wear vests and they've got compressive weight on their rib cage, whether that be, you know, um, military or, or sometimes a gear that our law enforcement guys have to carry is that if they're gassed and moving in their rib cage and wants to be moving, but I've got that compressive load there and it actually can't move, I can't create enough of a volume change or, it's, or it takes a lot more energy for me to contract my muscles to lift my rib cage, you know, against that weight, that's going to jack up the perception that I'm working so much harder with my breathing than what I need to. Now, often that's especially the case for, you know, even guys rucking, you know, with that constant weight over their shoulders, that when the, um, if they're an inefficient breather at rest, and then they are now a little bit, you know, working a little bit harder. My upper chest wants to move even more. I, theoretically, I need that upper chest and shoulders part of me to move to create a volume change to get air in. But if I've now got weight that's holding that down and it's harder for me to lift that against that weight, my brain's going to go, wow, I'm working so much harder with my breathing. But in that moment, they can actually be breathing into their diaphragm quite well, but often they're not taught how to do that. See, what's interesting, I, I do a strength and conditioning class, supposed to be for tactical athletes, um, getting local responders to show up is an old, another conversation in itself, but um, <laughs> we have some and kudos to them. But uh, one of the things I do is I took from StrongFit is uh, sandbag bear hug carry. So now you've got 100, 150, 200 pounds sitting on your chest as you bear hug it 
And that is a real eye-opener of whether you can actually belly breathe or not. Because a lot of people you see, they almost get into the panic state when they first start doing it because I can't breathe. Well, you can, as you said, but you're relying on that upper chest and that, that rib expansion rather than making your diaphragm do what it probably did when you were three or four that it's forgotten to do through sitting and whatever else has kind of taken away your biomechanics. Oh, that's such a great, that's such a great point. And we see it with BJJ, you know, some of our BJJ athletes too, you know, like if you're being pinned to the ground and, and one of the things that the, an opponent will do, right, is if they pinned you and it's checked, they'll, they'll increase pressure to actually stop you being able to move with your upper chest. Um, now that will make people panic if they're gassed because it's not moving. Uh, in one of our football codes down here in Australia, when you tackle someone, you, you're actually legally, in inverted commas, allowed to kind of pin them to the ground momentarily to allow all your players, and the you know, your players to get back on side. Um, now, again, if you're running and working hard and you're gassed and then someone puts a compressive load on your chest and you are used to needing that to move to feel like you're okay, that can absolutely incite panic. So what we teach people to do, and it's great in martial arts, in those, especially in BJJ, is actually there is usually always some part of your rib cage uh, that can move that you can create that pressure, you know, you can create that pressure change into. Um, and it's also being sometimes using that subtle awareness of your opponent's breath and breathing. You start to pick up a lot, you know, with their breath and their timing and you can kind of tell those subtle nuances of weight shift and what are they going to do. And, and that's, but again, that's a whole nother, another conversation down, down that arena. Um, but you've got to remember, right, breathing is literally the line between being dead and alive. And so we've got so many um, heightened alarm systems built into our body, mind, physiology, everything that says, are you breathing in the way I know keeps me alive? And as long as the answer to that question is yes, we're all good, even unfortunately, if that default pattern is actually very, very inefficient. Um, it's you know if, if we if we need to go to the bathroom we can hold on till it's appropriate to go right if you're a bit hungry you can deal with that until you get food you might be get a bit hangry but you know your tolerance point in terms of time frames is, is pretty good but with regards to breathing because it's literally that line between being dead and alive our tolerance point is you know oh man it's less than 30 seconds that if if we're getting a different feedback to our brain than what we are used to that we know keeps us alive, then we panic with that and nothing else matters until I get my breathing back to what I know is, is, is such a primal response, you know? Um, and this is why I think it's mind-blowing that we actually don't put more emphasis on the awareness of breathing. I think breathing has been given such a bad name because it gets put into the box of mindfulness or meditation or yoga. And it's actually this awesome kick-ass performance technique, right, that impacts on biomechanics and physiology and all of these other really cool things about physical performance, um, let alone the state control side of it um, that we're actually missing. Um, but, you know, coming back to, sorry, I've gone off on, on that tangent, but coming back to that, you know, that point is that, you know, your tactical performers that are in that class, I reckon you'll find that when you just eyeball them, before class or whatever, some of them may be mouth breathers, they might be nose breathers, but they will be moving their upper chest just subtly. So their little metronome in their brain says, I know I stay alive when I move my upper chest. When I don't feel that move, as far as my primal brain is concerned, I'm suffocating. I can't breathe. This isn't, even though it, it doesn't realize that actually my diaphragm is moving and I'm actually okay. This is what I was talking before about the those mechanoreceptors, those movement sensors in the body rather than the CO2 control. Is that now? If I'm not feeling those, you know, those 
sense that those movement sensors in my upper chest actually being triggered, then my primal brain has to interpret that as that means I can't breathe. Does that make sense? Your smart, intelligent brain knows I'm holding a, a 30 kilo sandbag, you know, bear hugging that, and this is by choice, and I can actually put it down, and you know, I'm actually still breathing, I'm all, all, all good. But the primal brain has no understanding of that. All it's getting is I'm not getting feedback from the things I'm used to getting feedback that says I'm alive. There is a problem. We see the same stuff for people who they read a book and they've gone, oh, I need to learn to nose breathe because I'm a mouth breather. I better shut my mouth and learn how to breathe through my nose. Great in concept. Problem with that is, again, our mouth hole is so much bigger than our nostrils that we've become used to going, oh, when I breathe, I get that big amount of air very quickly. It feels good. When I shut my mouth and I try to breathe through my nose, the holes are smaller. The resistance to airflow is harder and it takes longer for it to get anywhere. And more often that's probably going to go lower in my chest that I'm not used to. That doesn't feel good. I'm suffocating. I've just got to open my mouth and go back to that. Now, if someone could persevere through that, what ends up happening is the brain starts to eventually go, hang on a sec. I'm still alive. I'm okay. There must be feedback coming from somewhere. And that's where we start to get some reprogramming at brainstem level of how to change default breathing patterns. But most people, this comes back to the conversation we're talking about, the uncomfortableness, right? Most people aren't taught that when you actually try to retrain your breathe, your default breathing pattern, it's normal to feel feelings of air hunger. It's normal to feel like you're not getting enough air into your chest. It's normal to feel all of those things. But actually, if you just work through it and stay present with it and take some little breaks and you know some little techniques to that, but you'll absolutely reset that brainstem to go, oh, actually, nose breathing and diaphragm breathing is now the way I stay alive. Um, but that can take you know four to six weeks of consciously working at that to, to get to that point. Yeah, and I can relate completely. I had my nose broken and, you know, when I first started doing the nose breathing, it was it was almost it almost induced a panic response. Like you said, I, I can't get enough air in, but just sticking with it and, and going through the same, you know, and, and just tapering it, like not riding that red line the whole time, but, you know, taking a breath, you know, every fifth breath or whatever with your mouth so you can kind of work towards it. But now it's an incredible governor on, on the engine, as it were, where it will hold me Absolutely. to a, yeah, exactly, to a place where you're you're working very efficiently you're actually you know your your output is much higher than when you are mouth breathing and you think about physiologically like when your mouth is open you are panicking in theory you know it's the same as hyperventilation so when you're able to do a moderately high intensity with your mouth closed you're you can never hit the wall really and then you know if you want to then slam on the gas at the end you can kick it up even even more but i noticed that the the output the performance the kind of you know time under tension as it were absolutely improved but it was you know it was hard work it it sucked at first yeah and that's a great point like you think about as primal humans the only time we were ever really guessed you know was if we were running away from something trying to kill us or if we were chasing a food source we didn't actually do exercise for fun as best as we're aware you know um and so that breathing pattern of being out of breath and being guessed and working hard with our upper chest actually primes the sympathetic nervous system or the or that fight and flight nervous system because it interprets that as well the only time primarily i've ever done this is when there's a threat or a danger so actually for, for many people even hard intense exercise again even though it's by choice and it's certainly great for us will actually load up the you know the arousal state even more for it's actually a stressor on the system um for, for some people right now so learning how to control that first of all is going okay actually i'm i am this is where you have to use your self-talk a little bit 
I am doing this workout by choice, you know, or, um, you know, I'm going into this moment or, the, you know, the performance arena or whatever. But it's also to remember that your thought processes actually follow your breathing, not the other way around. So if your breathing is erratic and out of control and you're not even paying attention to it and it's just doing its thing off in the corner, then what you actually notice is your thoughts actually start to become quite erratic and fast and jumpy and all those sorts of things as well. But actually in that moment, you know, if you can actually just get control of your breath. Now, when I say control of your breath, that's going to be different based on different situations, right? So if I'm a running a running field-based athlete, that control of my breathing is still going to be hard and fast and big volumes and, and more than just sitting calmly in a chair. If I'm a firefighter in, in, in a job, you know, if I'm a, um, a military operator, you know, in a, a live fire scenario, your breathing is still going to be faster and harder and bigger, but it's still under its relative control. You know, it's not just erratic and, and doing this thing where often we'll see people where they'll put more emphasis on breath in so that sort of breathing pattern, right? And what ends up happening with that at some point is actually the depth of breath and the, the erratic out of controlness. As soon as the in-breath becomes longer than the out-breath, we flip this kind of physiological switch inside where our heart rate then starts to get completely out of control. Our lactate profile goes through the roof um, and it's not a sustainable physical workload for us. Um, we did some research many years ago and I was watching some triathletes on a, on a uh, peak power test where every few minutes the, the, the intensity would just get harder and harder and harder. They were on the gas um, machine with an oxygen mask, not oxygen mask, but they were measuring breathing patterns and things. Um, and I wasn't watching the athlete, I was watching the computer monitor. The athlete could terminate the test by choice when the intensity got too much for them. And I was actually watching what was happening for that timing of the in-breath to the out-breath. And as soon as I saw that flip, um, you know, of that in-breath now becoming longer than the out-breath, I'd actually be able to tell that athlete's going to stop that test within 10 seconds because it's not as and, and, and true, true to form they did. Now, they didn't hear me say that because obviously that, that might mess with their mind and they think that, you know, power of suggestion, um, not at all. But it, it's just not sustainable. We can't hold that workload. But again, because most of the time in those environments, we don't think of our breathing and having it under control unless we're doing those pause moments, right? And, and as I keep coming back to that, those are critical and important, but it's far more important all of the other stuff as well is that if that's getting out of control, then that's when we're going to hit just physical red line way earlier. We hit that early fatigue, and it's actually not because we're actually really fatigued. We've just short-circuited our physiology a little bit. We, James, we could talk for forever on all these breathing things, and we haven't even started going deep, and I'm so mindful of like the time in terms of from your listener's perspective. No, no, it's been brilliant. What I'm do you want to do? Do you want to keep, do you want to keep going, or do you want to wrap, or how are you going? No, I've got, I've got two things I want to touch on, and then we'll go to the wrap questions, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. All right, so just because it's very rarely discussed, and you are someone who studied, you know, breath and and performance in in, in multiple avenues, from tactical professions to sports. Um, one thing that you will see in a lot of fire stations these days, it looks like a Star Wars bar because there'll be CPAPs everywhere. Um, sleep deprivation is something that absolutely destroys our population. But what are you seeing as far as um, reasons for CPAP use? And you know, do you do you see any of the the breath work and and um, you know the solutions that you bring to your you know clients actually getting people back off CPAPs? Because to me, a CPAP is a band aid, not a solution. Yeah, and, and you hit the nail on the head with that, I think. And I think obviously it depends on whether it's central or peripheral. 
um, sleep apnea that's driving that, you know, and there's some, uh, there's a whole lot of science, deep science behind that. But I think sometimes in some of the people that I see, particularly if they've been involved in, in those high, sustained high-pressure, high-stakes environments that has reset their default pattern, is that because through the day they're used to breathing shallower and faster and mouth, then when they hit that nighttime and, and their natural respiratory rate will slow down and sometimes when they're asleep, their breathing pattern will actually be what you know more aligned with what we consider a normal breathing pattern you know um, but it slows down so much relative to what their brainstem is used to through the day that sometimes that you know they they do retain more co2 when they slow their breathing at night time compared to what they're used to operating on during the day and so when they breathe slower at night time and their co2 level actually starts to increase even though it's actually starting to increase back to what we'd consider a normal value, you know, when someone's been breathing shallow and fast all day and breathing off more CO2 through the day, they've reset their normal to being kind of lower. And you mentioned earlier that the drive to breathe is actually increasing CO2. It's not lack of oxygen. And so when their brains, when their CO2 starts to rise back to what would be considered, I guess, normal, but it's not normal for them, that can sometimes be that trigger to say, you know, quick, quick take, a, take a breath. And that can actually sometimes wake them up in, in that scenario. Um, and so certainly I've seen um, some people who absolutely have been able to come off there. And, and I don't, I have to be so careful with what I say, right? But, but, but because I don't want to be, you know, um, everyone to go, oh, great, I just need to learn to breathe and I'll be off my CPAP. Not at all. Because sometimes there are some real medical reasons and, and often there's real medical reasons why people need them. Um, but I think that I've certainly seen people that come off their CPAP by actually learning better breath control through the day. And, that, and by that, I mean the default breathing pattern, not just the, you know, few minutes of tactical breathing. That's not going to be enough. Um, but then, it is, you know, also it's like, well, what else is going on at a, at a neural level and a psych level for some of these guys where, man, that they're, sleep, they're so used to be, their sleep being disrupted all the time anyway, you know, because of whatever's going on, right? Um, because they're used to almost sleeping with one eye open all the time. Now, if you're going off to sleep um, as an upper chest breather, because that's your default pattern, then you're almost going to, you, you, because that, upper chest breathing pattern is hard-coded with that sympathetic nervous system, right, the high arousal state nervous system. It means I'm trying to go to sleep in a high arousal state. Now, at a primal level, my brain's like, oh, there must be a lion somewhere because Rachel's breathing like there is. So I'm not going to allow myself to go into a deep sleep because I better sleep with one eye open because, you know, as we, as we know often, you know, the attacks come when the, when the darkness is there, right? And so, and so it's like we don't feel... At a, at a um, neurophysiological level, we're not going to sleep in a safe, you know, in a, in a state that we believe is safe. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, so that'll disrupt our sleepers. That that disrupts our sleep as well, um, even more and more so. And so I think some of the waking and the, and, the, and the breath catching and all that sort of stuff is second to your point. It's the symptom, um, and we're treating the symptom, but we're not treating the underlying cause. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate your perspective on that. No, that's okay. That, I think that comes back to the thing I was talking about before about the difference between fixing broken or intentionally setting things up. And I think, unfortunately, traditional medicine, and, you know, I've lived and worked in that environment such, such a long time, so I'm as guilty as the next person in this space. But we're so good at, we think we're good at treating the symptoms, not so good at going, well, actually, what's causing that in the first place and how do we actually address that? If you've got a headache because you bang your head on a brick wall and you take some Tylenol, 
for the headache, but you keep banging your head on the brick wall, you know, the headache's going to come back. So you're going to be keeping on taking a whole lot of Tylenol rather than just stopping, you know, just stop banging your head on the brick wall and it's going to make a whole lot of things better. <laughs> yeah, and it's true. I mean, sad. that's one of the conversations I, I, I'm trying to to be one of the voices to push out is we just, you know, we do not allow our men and women that work shifts, whether it's police, fire, dispatch, whoever, to recover from those shifts when everyone's safely in their bed, not thinking about being murdered by a lion. There are men and women that are out protecting the streets, protecting their countries, and we're actually working them longer than the person in the bank, person in the grocery store. Yep. So, you know, we have to, in my opinion, we have to give these people that we ask to really sacrifice their health to at least give them Absolutely. enough time to recover in between their shifts. Yeah, and it's and it's understanding that that sympathetic nervous system state, it's a catabolic state, like it breaks things down. You know, it's not sustainable and something's going to give. And, and coming back to what we were talking before, the people that have self-selected to go into these roles, they are mentally and emotionally strong and resilient. They are not weak, you know. And so because of that, unfortunately, they've got the ability mentally and emotionally, they've got that mental and emotional toughness and resilience to keep pushing probably further down that line um, at, at a physiological cost, further down that line before they finally put the bag down to go, I need, I need a break, I need, I, I've, I've had enough. And unfortunately for so many of our alpha personalities in, in our, you know, those sort of roles, right, is that it's too late. They do it too late. You know, they, they do it when they are forced to because their physiology has now pulled the rug from underneath them and they've hit burnout or they've hit PTSD or they've hit whatever that point is that their physiology is screaming at them going, I can no longer cope with this. Something's going to give, you know, because, of course, when, with that physiology state, you know, that arousal state, it's like once you cross red line, man, you don't half explode a bomb, right? So it goes. And so for anyone who who is, you know, over time, their arousal state's been creeping up closer and closer and closer and closer to red line over time. And I'm not talking about an acute moment. I'm talking about, you know, over weeks, months, years, like whatever that is. Now your tolerance is, is, is so much shorter. So one more little increase in, in arousal state, you cross your red line and you lose it, you know. And so that's where we'll see behavior problems. You know, we'll see people lashing out. We'll see people being like those angry outbursts, you know. And someone from the outside will look at that and go, wow, that was a big overreaction to something. It's actually really not a big deal, you know. But it's understanding that that person's not reacting to that thing. They're reacting to everything that's actually pushed them to that state in the first place. But again, often we go, oh, we've got to treat that. They've got an anger management problem or that person will go looking for, you know, drugs or alcohol or sex or porn addiction or gambling or something to take the edge off how crappy that feels being in that place all the time. Um, and then they've got the shame attached to whatever it is that they're using to self-medicate, you know, and the marriage is breaking down and, 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 you know, and the consequence of that um, rather than going actually, you know, what could we have done to actually have front loaded a whole lot of things in the first place? And that's actually the treat, the treat the cause of the problem, not just treating the symptoms of stuff. Absolutely. Well, one more area, speaking of not being able to kind of offload stress, um, when I go to that structure fire, and I get off the engine or the truck and there is a fire and I get to take heavy shit off whatever vehicle it is and, and go and do manual stuff. To me, that is replicating fighting the bear, you know, killing, killing the animal to eat, to, you know, carrying it back to the village, whatever, whatever kind of primeval uh, version of stress response would be. When I'm handed that baby, okay, I'm sure one big element is that there isn't that. 
you know, pediatric CPR is not, you know, much exertion. You're using, you know, two thumbs. Um, so when I think of a parallel, I think of, for example, our men and women in dispatch who have these high, high stress um, phone calls, but they're sat at a desk in the dark for 12 hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah. another group that I know you work with are surgeons or you know, the medical community. So just before we close up, you know, what are some of the tools that you bring to that, that profession where again, a, there, you know, some of them are working through the night and B, they don't have that physical, you know, offloading that a lot of us do in the more tactical professions. Mm. And I think I smiled internally when you talked about not, how not many of the your people will turn up for the, um, you know, the operator train, physical training sessions, that you, you know, because you can lead people to water and they often they won't take it, right? Um, because often people who with medicine and there's exceptions to this absolutely and some of the best medical specialists I've seen are guys who and women who are also physically active themselves you know they have that physical outlet um, and I think that's critical so we certainly try to encourage people no, you know those specialists no matter what you know it doesn't matter what it is but to try and do something where they are physically to exactly to your point battling that bear you know coming home from a shift and maybe even if it's just a walk if they're not a physically active person at least that's something um better if it's actually something where it's really pretty intense for them short sharp burst of like i just i need to get that stuff out you're you're absolutely right um but i think even simple things then about front loading to go to to you know what we'll often see with surgeons and specialists is um they take a certain pride in, in the sleep deprivation you know sometimes you know so oh, i've been up for how many hours and there's a it's a badge of honor that's a, that's attached to that without actually understanding how awful and detrimental that is i did a presentation to um, a room of trauma surgeons and you know, just saying to them, hey, you know, if how would you feel if your wife or your mum was going into surgery with with a colleague who'd been, you know, drinking sort of, you know, four or five glasses of wine right before right before that procedure? And you'd hope that most of the surgeons are going to go, well, I wouldn't let that happen. And yet we allow that from that sleep deprivation perspective, right? Um, so sometimes just drawing that awareness to them. Um, but also things in that scenario, if because they're not often people that necessarily want to be physically active, is things like nutrition, you know, trying to keep sugar intake really low. Um, you know, often these people on shift will also drink, you know, actually one of our hospitals here, uh, the early in the p pandemic, one of the um, ICUs was given a whole bunch of Red Bull, you know, um, and I, I probably shouldn't have used the, used the name, right, but, um, but energy drinks. Um, and you go, that's the last thing often these guys need when they're in a high-pressure, high-stress environment is, hey, let's throw, more, let's throw more caffeine into the system, which is going to jack things up anyway. Um, so, try, you know, trying to minimise some of those things. So for, often for those guys, it's as best as we can. How can we front-load some strategies around optimising sleep? You know, are you trying to sleep when you are in shift in a, in a cool, dark room using those eye shades? using those earplugs, squaring away your nutrition so you haven't got the high sugar intake, which is going to jack up, you know, the, you know, significantly impacts um, brain chemistry from the gut microbiome perspective. I'm sure you've had some experts talk about that stuff. Um, alcohol use, you know, not looking to alcohol as being your crutch at the end of a long shift because actually it's a stimulant, which means you're actually going to sleep more poorly. Um, often there's stuff either side of that. I mean, the ideal I'd say is you all need to go and, and, and do a martial art or do some crossfit or do some boxing, have a bat. That would be the ideal, but they're not necessarily going to do that because they need to burn off that adrenaline 100%. Perfect. Well, thank you for that. Well, Rachel, I want to just ask, you know, one more question. So 
I'm sure people are listening, um, you know, are intrigued, you know, so you not only have your athletic background, you have this incredible kind of physiology world that you found yourself in now. If people want to learn more about you, if they want to read your papers, if they, you know, where's the best places to, to connect with you, either websites or social media? Sure. So I'm on, um, I'm on Facebook and Insta. I'm not particularly active. I do tend to fly under the radar a little bit, but I'm very approachable. Um, LinkedIn is probably where I'm probably most active. Um, and then I've got a website, rachelvickery.com um, is one of them. And then breathingandperformance.com is the other. Um, and then I can also uh, be on email, rachel at rachelvickery.com. Um, and so happy for people to reach out. I, I really like to you know, help people engage as best as I can. Well, I just want to say thank you. We talked about, well, when we first started the Zoom call, you were like, is this going to be an hour? I was like, no, probably an hour and a half. And we're sitting at almost two and a half hours. <laughs> and there's the areas that we didn't even get to that I wanted to ask you about. But I just want to sure. say thank you so much. I mean, we've gone so many different places from, you know, youth athletics to, you know, abuse all the way through to, you know, breathing and physiology and sporting and tactical athletes. So thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, James. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I and I just hope there's some, some something of value that helps some of your listeners in and amongst that. They've done phenomenally well if they've got to the end of two and a half hours, and I really it was awesome to meet you. And thank you for the amazing job that you do. You know the value, and I'm, I'm not putting myself in this category of, of guest, um, but the quality of guests that you get on and the value that you deliver to people that really does make a difference to their lives and their livelihoods is is just it's just awesome. So kudos to you. Keep doing it. 